I'm Kisada Bowman. Today, my guest is Chef Will Goldfarb. He joins us from Ubud, Bali, where currently he's chef and owner of Room for Dessert. He's an author, too. His 2018 book is also called Room for Dessert. From being the first American to work at El Bouilly, to the first pastry chef to be profiled in The New Yorker, and most recently earning a spot on the world's 50 best restaurants list in 2021, taking home the prize of the world's best pastry chef. Goldfarb has lived a life that many people dream of, but dreams can be deceiving. Life has dealt Chef Goldfarb many ups and downs, teaching him more life lessons than most people ever get to experience. We'll be discussing the intoxicating rise to fame, how to train your mind in toxic environments, and exploring our ego and how we can transcend beyond it. So I'll start by asking, as we always do, Chef Goldfarb, have you eaten yet? This could be a meal from today or a cup of coffee that you're drinking now, or it could be the last meal that you have a really great memory about, one that truly resonated with you. It could be one from 10 years ago or any time. Thanks, Casada. I'm really uh, glad to be here. I, I think it, what is it, long-time listener, first-time caller. I'm really happy to be <laughs> on your show. And uh, I'm here uh, at Room for Dessert in Ubud. And over, let's say, a second breakfast, which I snuck in uh, while we were prepping of a couple of extra eggs, I'm sort of a terrible uh, blood sugar I'm not sure victim is the right word. Let's say blood sugar. I pay a lot of attention and I'm a disaster every morning, which is obviously great for a pastry chef uh, who's been eating sugar for 30 years. So I always, I start every day uh, with the same thing, which is a two egg omelet and some greens or mushrooms, uh, some dragon fruit and yogurt and pumpkin seeds. And I've sworn off coffee actually the last couple of years uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, although I have a decaf coffee next to me, which is sort of better and worse than the real thing. Um, I did I did slip in a second two-egg breakfast uh, while we were here. Uh, but I think to your question of memorable meals, I, I always think of Bistro de la Marine in a Con Sur Mer, which is a restaurant by Jacques Maximin, uh, not currently open, that he opened with his family. Uh, I went there with my daughter, wow, 10 years ago, so she would have been seven. And we sort of went to Consermer just to eat there. Actually, we stayed in a hotel about 100 meters down the beach, and we went uh, three nights in a row. And he's a chef that I've been a big fan of for a very, very long time. He's the chef that uh, Ferran and Albert always credit with being the inspiration of like mixing the sweet and savory world. And he's one of those sort of great enfant terrible of Nouvelle Cuisine in France who never received his third star when he was at Chanticleer in the Negresco in Nice. Uh, and kind of ahead of his time in a million ways, he, he's an amazing chef. And so he had this sort of little rinky-dink uh, seafood bistro, uh, which was absolutely spectacular. And he was still cooking every night. I think he must have been in his mid-70s or early 70s, uh, still on the line. Uh, he's now running the Ducasse School in Paris, so he's still around. And for our new menu in the restaurant, we call it a poubelle cuisine because it's sort of our favorite nouvelle cuisine dishes uh, using all the trimmings from our medicinal plants garden. And uh, several of the dishes are are inspired by his book and some of the meals that we had there. And actually, I got a, a thank you, chef, on the Instagram from him, which was a very uh, high praise. So I think basically that's good enough for me. I'm ready to uh, retire. <laughs> 
And what was one dish that maybe you did you have repeatedly or was it a totally different menu every night that you went? Uh, we had night? everything different every time except for one dish because it was so good, which was a uh, soul fingers. So it was like a julienne of vegetables, you know, very 70s. Uh, julienne vegetables with mussels and then sole covered with fish broth and then cooked in the broiler, which was sort of a Freddy Girardet technique where the fish gets broiled, but while it's covered with liquid, it's a fascinating way of cooking it. Um, so it ends up being like an a la minute fish soup, but with a whole uh, sole in it. Um, yeah, that was pretty spectacular. We had that every day. We, we kept ordering that uh, every night, even though we tried everything else on the menu. <laughs> Well, so we're going to get started and kind of as a, as a, uh, I don't know, just kind of tying our listeners in chef Goldfarb and I had a nice little chat before we got started and I wrote a 22 page script, right? Because chef Goldfarb has this amazing life, right? And so, you know, I do my research, I write this script and then when talking to him, I realize, wow, there's so much I don't know. And and we're just going to free flow through it. We're, we're going to follow the script, but just also know and kind of bear with us, everyone, because there's so much more happening. And there's like lifetime ago, you know, a lifetime ago that I wrote about, but he's been through so much more that I had no idea. Um, so there's many levels to this amazing person that you're about to hear from. And also he's doing so much right now. So, so bear with us because we're going to go through the traditional story that maybe people are aware of, but we're also going to go off in little tangents and you might learn different things and, and see what he's doing now, which is a lot of fantastic stuff. So you mentioned France. Uh, so the opening scene in chef's table that everyone knows uh, you're describing being in Paris for pastry school. The teachers were really clear. This is a bad career decision. They're saying leave now, even as a hobby, bad idea. You say same experience in Spain. The guy you worked with would say you're terrible. You had chefs screaming at you constantly 18 hours a day. And we've heard this from other chefs. You know, this is the old school way uh, that we've heard you know, it, it would not fly today, at least in many places here in the U.S., um, but this is the old guard and we're familiar with that. But you say there's also there's only so many t- times there's only so many times that you can hear that you're the worst, that your mind says maybe they're right And this happened for years. This theme of you're not enough would continuously come up. And this is something that everyone has. I mean, we have our minds that can go into these thoughts, deep thoughts that nine times out of 10 aren't even true. So that angle of this really fascinates me. So I have two questions. Do you think that every chef has dealt with a version of this or that your recurring theme had a deeper meaning? And also, how did you train your mind to push forward on this path in these seemingly, at times, toxic environments? Well, thank you. I think it's a great question. And there's a couple, I mean, there's a lot to unpack in the lead into the question. It is a very thorough, it is a very thorough intro to the question. 
I think before before I jump into your question, I, I would just say in terms of characterizing the primary kitchens that I was in, which is Mulo and Chebreo and El Bulli, there really was not a lot of screaming uh, or yelling, and there was no physical violence of any kind. Uh, and I just want to be clear, I'm, I, we stand with people who are challenging toxic environments and kitchens all over the world. I don't think there's any question that the kitchen has moved on a lot. Uh, but I also want to be clear that none of those three places were, uh, I don't think, have been or would be characterized as that sort of violent, bullying, uh, toxic culture that we are so familiar with and, and rightly so familiar with and calling out right now. Uh, I, when I speak about my professors at the Cordon Bleu, I mean, that was a pretty quiet criticism and more, I mean, that was more of a disdain. <laughs> and when it comes to, when it comes to El Bulli, I mean, that the person that was pushing me every day is, is one of my best friends uh, who drove across Europe to see me just a few weeks ago, uh, 25 years later. Um, and the person who I went out with every night after service. So uh, I'm not saying that that was healthy competition. Maybe it's like a childish boy-like thing. So I'm not trying to characterize it as good behavior. Um, and nor am I trying to indicate that sort of mental belittling or is this somehow less important. But I think there is a distinction that that's important, that El Bulli really was a different kind of place uh, from the traditional French cuisine. But it had its own uh, way of pushing you to perform. And I think that that's something that every chef that I've talked to uh, has gone through. Many are in the process of fixing the broken parts of that. I mean, I know people all over the world, all, literally all over the world, who are working to fix the sort of excesses and, and let's say terrible behavior that they either witnessed or underwent in these kitchens. And I think for me personally, I actually felt lucky that uh, I didn't experience any of those terrible inhumane treatments. I just was in a very pressure filled environment. Um, and I think that to, to bring it to your questions, um, which is, has every chef dealt with this? I mean, I think of myself as the average guy. I, I don't see myself as being special in any way. And I don't think that I encountered any unique obstacles. I mean, if anything, I have unique opportunities and access because of where I came from or education. You know, like I, I, I look at myself as having been very privileged, not, not, very, uh, not, not very like put down upon uh, by the system. And I think I've had a lot of opportunity. And frankly, where we are now, that's something we try to give back uh, and make sure that people have access to opportunity uh, in everything that we do. And that's, to me, that's really the takeaway from that experience is, is about providing access. Uh, you know, we're very mm -hmm. big here at Room for Dessert that there's no, I mean, this is something my wife always says, which is there's no, there's no talent gaps, you know, but there, there are access gaps. Um, so, mm -hmm. so for us here, you know, we're a team of almost 40 people now, you know, almost everyone is under 25. Our entire kitchen brigade is female, actually, uh, the whole, the whole team, uh, pastry and savory, uh, and all of our leadership, uh, 80% of our leadership is female and, and 90% of it is under 26. <laughs> so, and all, and all of it is, and all of it is Indonesian colonies in Indonesia. So, so we're, we're very comfortable uh, 
speaking to providing access. And I think for me personally, I had a lot of amazing opportunities that wouldn't necessarily have been available to other people. Uh, and I, I, don't, I don't see sort of my uh, path as having been exceptionally difficult. Um, I know it seems that way when you read it. And even when I was reading it this morning, um, it looks like it almost seems like uh, these insurmountable tasks. But I think and I guess that's part of the lead into your second question, which is in terms of, you know, how do you train yourself to deal with adversity in general? I think, I mean, the best way that I found is, is sort of to ignore it and <laughs> just keep going um, and and not really to, I, I mean, I, I think the times that I've been in trouble or when I think that I'm special and uh, deserve special treatment and the times that I've functioned really well is just when I go and get on with the task. And I mm -hmm. think that um, in terms of kind of learning how to grow in different environments, again, I've been, I've been very lucky to deal with, to have very nurturing and supportive people in all of those roles. You know, like even as Gerard Mulot in Paris, I mean, he's notorious for for being an exceptional gentleman, uh, you know, and, and not saying, not ever raising his voice, uh, but coming over and sort of pouring water on the area if it's dirty, because like, you know, that's sort of his way of doing it. Um, and I, that was my first experience uh, in Florence. I, you know, it was a little more, uh, a little more macho, but, but still it was, you know, kitchen filled with Tuscan cooks and, and Japanese stagiaires. And it was sort of everybody just got on with it every day. Uh, there wasn't really much time to sit around and there, and there wasn't any time to yell. You know, the places I've been are so busy, like you, no one had time or energy to waste on, on yelling. Uh, it just, there's, it's just too much work. Uh, I think that lifestyle where, uh, you're like this sort of workaholic, which is like right the approved addiction of like overwork. I think I think that's something that, with respect, I haven't seen any uh, evolution in the kitchen. Not not that it hasn't changed, just that the kitchen reference points that we all look to still come from this grounding. So I'm ho I, I think in 20 years maybe we can talk about where, you know, all these kitchens that produce these great products you know, on eight hour days or four hour work day, four hour work week, mm -hmm. uh, sorry, four day work weeks. But, you know, I think still most people's reference point in the kitchen is, is, is long hours and pretty hard work. And I, I think it's, I, I think it's very unfortunate. And I know specifically many of my colleagues have been treated terribly uh, with like uh, gender based, uh, language. So all of, all of these things, and, and I don't want to minimize that at all. I'm certainly not implying that they're not prevalent. I just don't think those were obstacles that I personally, as a, you know, from my background had to deal with in the same way that a lot of other people do. Yeah. So I think I was pretty lucky. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> well, you mentioned El Bulli around 1999. You're the first American to work there. It's the best restaurant in the world. You're working with Albert Adria. He was creating a new genre for restaurants. You knew you were somewhere special almost immediately, probably before you even arrived. Definitely. What's the single greatest piece of advice that he gave you or that you learned or observed from him in the kitchen? I think the best piece of advice that I received from both Albert and Ferran was that if you don't cook for the customer, you'll never be successful. And... 
I think that's not, there are a lot of lessons that I learned there that are not the sort of top line uh, story of El Bulli. You know, it's always about this sort of innovation and this laboratory and this crazy setting. But at the end of the day, I think what, really what I learned there were a few simple things about humility and cooking for the customer and being generous. Um, I think I think two other small details would probably be be helpful. I, I think, you know, so that's something I got at the end of my time together while we were working in the lab together, which is about, you know, who are you cooking for? And, you know, really, and it's interesting because it's something that echoes in. I received a book from Albert Raurich, who was the chef of the small kitchen there. He has a place in Barcelona called Dos Palilos, uh, and he's an amazing chef as well. And he signed a book for me this year, and it, and it, and it said, uh, I mean, it was in Catalan, but it said, you know, cooking's being generous. So, like, mm. that's what it's all about. And I think that's an extension of this sort of spirit of who, who are you cooking for? You know, not yourself. Like, if you're cooking for yourself, there's, there's no point. Um, and I think, again, that's not sort of the first thing that you would think of when you think of them. Um, I think there's also a real... Um, humility there which was you know the year that i went they had just been picked as the best restaurant in the world and they just received three michelin stars and their attitude was well now we really need to work hard right because everyone thinks that we're the best so we really need to be the best like if we needed to be the best before we need to be like a million times the best now um so i think that kind of humility again is really important and i think that was very powerful uh, for me to see that that's mm -hmm. like, you know, if you're at the top of your game and you're still treating yourself as an apprentice, I think that's a really healthy perspective. And I think one other thing that actually trickles uh, very strongly into what we do here, which is the, about pricing. Uh, again, not something that's spoken about a lot. At the time, they were the least expensive three-star restaurant in Europe. They were 80, 80 USD about for 30 or 40 or 50 dishes. Um, and at the time, to give a reference point, you know, Ducasse was still uh, not yet in Paris. I think Robichon was the sort of standard for three stars in 1997. And it was about 250 to $300 a person without wine. So it was wow. about three or four times more expensive. Um, and I spoke to Ferran about it. And, and his response was, you know, we could triple or quintuple the price and we would be more popular. Uh, but no, no local, no Spanish people could eat here. Um, and, and I think that's something that we took into account here. You know, we have a 30 course menu is about $60, I think $70 here, which again, I'm not, this is not a budget restaurant, but it is the place that you can go to once a year as a special occasion. And you can also come and have a $5 dessert. You know, you don't need to have a tasting menu. You can just, or you can have, you can have uh, French fries, frankly, but, um, you know, there's, there's. There is a lot, I think, to be said for humility and sensitivity to people around you and access. And again, I think that access mm -hmm. keeps keeps coming through and through and through. I mean, I also watched them cook a steak uh, because that's what somebody wanted. You know, they took a whole side of beef and roasted it on the on the plancha in the middle of a service of uh, 75, 40 course menus uh, because that's what, you know, like this is something I also got from Craig Shelton at the Ryland Inn, which is like if. If anyone ever wants anything and you can do it without literally closing your restaurant, you should probably do it. Um, so, and I know that isn't consistent with this sort of like mad genius approach to kitchens, but for me, those are the those things always went together, right? That that they weren't they weren't uh, they weren't competing. They were they were uh, supporting each other and complementary, right? The idea of being generous and 
being sensitive and taking care of people and being humble, like to me, those are the keys to performance. They're not a takeaway. So I think yeah. those were very valuable things to learn um, early in my career uh, and from a really good reference point who are still reference points for the world. Yeah. Wow. Those are gems. Those are real gems. Wow. Well, back then, if I told you that your time at El Believe would still define who you are as a chef 23 years later, would that surprise you? Uh, yes and no. I think it would surprise me. I mean, if you asked me 25 years ago, uh, I think it would surprise me because I know that I made a, like a clear break you know, as opposed to sort of staying in the family for six, 10, 20 years and defining myself that way. I know that I made a clear break to kind of go out on my own. Uh, and at, But ironically, of course, you know, the more you go out on your own, then the more you sort of have that reference point. Um, so, you know, we'll be building our research space. We'll have a physical place next door and it will be called the Tire, you know, like the workshop. So that's 24 years later uh, and sort of still chasing that same idea of doing something exceptional, which again, I think is sort of healthy if you can do it with some perspective. Um, it's nice to try to make things that are exceptional, even if it's just for yourself. Uh, and then I think no, if, in the sense that if you were there and you know who was there uh, and you know that it was all the, like this entire generation of chefs from all over the world, that was the reference point, right? So, uh, that's not surprising because you knew that those were the ta most talented people from everywhere, that they were going to go back home and become Massimo Bottura, who was a stage in pastry, Rene Redzepi, you know, who's the chef. Like, you, you didn't have to wonder. You know when you see that kind of talent. Like, it doesn't matter if mm. you're 23 or 25 or whatever year you are. Um, but, you know, the number one restaurant in the world is run by a El Bulli graduate from 2000 who is cooking, you know, really, whose most recent product is this, you know, the, the Noma Projects, right, which is a really science-driven approach to fermented mm -hmm. foods. Um, so, again, that's something where, like, it's pretty seamless if you look at a quarter century. There, there aren't really anyone, uh, there isn't really anyone who I see as having had a similar influence over the last century I don't know that we had that kind of historical context 25 years ago, but at the same time, we kind of did. You kind of knew. I mean, that was the changing of the guard from Robichon to Ferran uh, for world cooking. I mean, Robichon is the one actually who said it himself. You know, he retired in 97 and he was quoted as saying the best restaurant in the world is El Bulli in 98. Like that was the handoff. Um, it, it marked mm -hmm. this shift from France not so much from France to Spain, but it was from France to Spain, which then opened the door for all of these other places around the world. And, you know, right now you'd have to say that that's Copenhagen, uh, Denmark. And, yeah. but that's a, and that's a thread that, that runs straight through. So I don't know. I, I, I would imagine people in uh, other disciplines can relate to that. You kind of know when you're on the best team, you know, like it just, you just sort of know, I, or I don't know if clothing or filmmaking, like, you know, if you're making like, the Royal Tannenbaums or something 25 years ago, like you kind of know, like the right. guy's a good movie maker, right? You know, he's not, right. this isn't going to be his last show. Um, right. And I think if you're, I think that that's just, you just know, you know, when everybody's there, you know, if you're in the place where everybody wants to go, 
Um, and even if it's this incredibly small, insulated, and in some ways backwards world, which you know, which you alluded to in the previous questions, like there is still an excitement that comes with uh, being at a hub of ideas uh, because it is exciting. Um, yeah. And and I think again to your previous points, I, I think that historically those types of places can do a hell of a lot better with access. Uh, and I think that you're seeing that now in the new generation. I, I think I think that you are seeing uh, greater access. I, I hope that you are. I know I speak from a very privileged position, but it appears to me at least that there is a sensitivity that access is a good thing, <laughs> like that that people are supposed <laughs> to be in, allowed to be there and not just a certain group of people. So for yeah. me, that's that's very important, and and I really do think that that there was a democratization of moving things away from. Uh, French cooking and, mm -hmm. and the sort of palaces of three Michelin, you know, moving it from Michelin to, again, to San Pellegrino is, is another, it, let's say an imperfect system, but a democratized system, right? When you're moving mm -hmm. away from like one expert, the guy with the chair and the pencil. And I think that's evolved. I think that's evolved a lot over 25 years. I mean, and we'll, I think, I don't want to tip my hand. Maybe I'll just hold that for later. But I think in terms of, uh, there's been interesting new methods of feedback, which are not at less relevant than they were at the time. Um, and so it's uh, the, the way to communicate has become so immediate. Uh, and mm. I, think, I think that's changed a lot of the way that things are exchanged. I don't know that yeah. you could have a place now uh, where you could still be surprised uh, when everyone has been following your Instagram. Uh, and I think right. surprise... Uh, taking that away, um, I think that's been a that. And this is very off topic from your question, but I think that's a challenge of that we need to deal with now, which is how do you sort of deal create something exceptional uh, in a post surprisable world? Um, but mm. yeah, but uh, we can. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so hopefully we can figure that out in the next ten or twenty years. You were rejected from there the first time when you tried to stage there. What made you try again? Well, I had a, one of my professors in college who taught a leadership class. His, his attitude was always, if you don't ask me three times, then I assume you don't really want it. So that's kind of always been my mantra for that. Uh, and I don't have any shame about asking again and again and again for things that I would like. Um, I think yeah. it, I think, and that's kept coming up in my career and it served me really, really well. So I think actually, yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm pretty stubborn in general and pretty determined in general, but I also don't have any issue. I didn't view it as being rejected. I just viewed it as the process of asking. I love that. If you accepted that first rejection, which it sounds like that is not you and would never <coughs> be you, but, but let's say you were in a different headspace and you did not try again. What do you think your path in life would have been like without staging there? Oh, I don't know. I, I tend to like, you know, I'm a history student. I always think of, uh, you know, it either, right. You make the moment or the moment makes you or, or the same thing and happens in the end anyway, or it doesn't. So I don't really know. Uh, I, I think that it would have been very different. I probably would have come back to New York, uh, and taken a job. I mean, at that point, I already knew I wanted to go there, which meant I was already switched on to that world of food. So the idea that I would have never found a way back on that path, 
I'm not sure I necessarily buy that reasoning. I think I probably would have ended up in a roundabout way, but who knows? I got really lucky uh, to be in the right place at the right time. And, and it's helped me a lot uh, ever since. I, I, I'm just very lucky. I'm very grateful. I think it was an amazing opportunity. And I know, again, I don't take it for granted. You know, we work so hard with our team here to make sure that they have chances to go places. And it's just so difficult. You can't just go to Europe and like show up. And, you know, we send, you know, one of our, our restaurant managers is going to Mad Academy and our sustainability manager and you know, in 2019, we sent pretty much our whole senior team around the world to work at some of the best restaurants in the world with our friends. And I guess I just don't take that opportunity for granted. And we try to make sure that people here get that. And, you know, you think of things as being difficult, you know, coming with an American passport when you're coming with an Indonesian passport, and you can't even go to these places at all, even on holiday. Uh, it's pretty extraordinary. Um, it, that's not a perspective that I think I would have appreciated that. Uh, but I definitely mm -hmm. felt grateful for all of the access that I had. And that was relatively seamless. Um, you know, it was easy for me to go make a couple hundred bucks and go back to Europe. And that's just not something that most of the world takes for granted. Um, so, yeah. so I don't know. I'm, I, I feel very lucky and I, and I hope to pass that luck along. Yeah. You've said that Ebeli made you feel special like you were at the center of the universe and your confidence was sky high from it. And that after working there, your new minimum standard was to be the best in the world. And you've mentioned your privilege a few times now. So you're very self-aware that you are privileged. You are a white male American, you know, that you I have am. this privilege. But that being said, is there's almost a, another level of privilege just from working there, from staging there at your age at that time. Yeah. So put yourself in that headspace when you were that, you know, young man to know that moving forward, you know that you can leave here and you can work at any restaurant that you desire. What did that feel like? Yeah, I don't know that it really registered to me at the time. I, I'm, I tend, ironically, to sort of be in the moment. Uh, and I think I... I think when you're young, you kind of think you can do anything in general, uh, or at yeah. least if you're young from a certain background. Uh, I'm not trying to overgeneralize, but let's say I, I think it's really, uh, I, I mean, to be fair, I thought I was entitled to work there, right? So that's like the definition of privilege. Like, I, I mean, and I had previously been rejected from a, a dozen other three Michelin star places like Pierre Gagnier, Marc Bayrod, Michel Bras. So I mean, if anything, the route that would have been more likely to derail me would have been one of them taking me in when I was in France rather than like uh, something else having happened there. Um, but I'm not sure. I, I know a lot of people. I, I always think that there is a I would say there has to be at least a small part of like pursuit of things that that is related to initiative. And let's say that initiative is emboldened by access, right, an opportunity. Uh, so. I feel like I felt like I was very lucky to have those chances. And I kind of thought it was my responsibility to make the most of them. That was really the way that I grew up was like, well, if you can do anything, then you should do something good. Right. That's the that's the like that's sort of the point. You should make it count. Not everyone has that chance to, to do something. Uh, so 
And ironically, that's a lot of pressure. You know, if you're, you're, you feel the need to perform, then that is its own type of pressure. That is a very different type of pressure from scrapping to survive or, you know, like fighting through other types of discrimination, which I've been fortunate enough uh, to, to avoid. Um, I, I don't know. It's, uh, it's, I just feel very lucky. I mean, like I said, I think that's the biggest thing here. We were... We, a lot of people are surprised at uh, the things that we do at Room for Dessert for the people that work here. And I mean, for me, those are all normal things that we do. Even if no one else does them, they should be normal. You know, like everybody mm-hmm. should. It, it should be normal. So if that's not the case, that's not really our problem in the sense like that other people should sort of get with the program, right? Like, you know, like yeah. uh, we have a lot of young, powerful women that are running the show here. You know what I mean? Like, so... If someone else didn't give them an opportunity, that's kind of their problem, right? They need to get with the program. Like, it's not really, um, it's not, we're not trying to be judgmental about anybody else. We're just trying to do what should we think is normal and fair and, and equitable. Yeah. So in the early 2000s, you returned to New York from the best restaurant in the world. And you decide to work with Chef Paul LeBrand. And you start creating interactive dishes that incorporate syringes and sensory deprivation and blindfolding and darkness and handcuffs. At times, guests consented to lick their food off the back of a half-naked woman in a fog-filled room. The general idea was to make diners experience flavors and textures outside their normal context. And it was about being provocative. Where did these concepts come from? And if you can go back to that time, like what at that time is influencing you the most? Well, I think at that time, and I guess it's always, I mean, it sounds, it sounds sort of loose, uh, but the way, <laughs> the way, and, and, and who knows, and, 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 and maybe, maybe it is, I, I don't, I'm sure it's certainly out of style. Uh, and I think some of it is probably problematic. I think, I think, yeah, jelly wraps people are probably, um, probably not on the program these days. And I think that's pretty, that's pretty reasonable. Um, I think at the time that agenda or like group of things was really uh, coming from the futurist manifesto, which is a Marinetti who's the author. And I mean, literally every single item uh, that was done was a direct translation of a recipe or a experience from that futurist cookbook. Um, there was no, so, um, I think the, I mean, I would, I would be, uh, I would just like to say like, I, it sounds, I want to say it sounds worse than it is. Maybe it's worse than I remember it. That's another way of saying it. So I guess I would say this, there was no like, um, submission or, you know, there were people that were blindfolded, you know, sitting alone, like there were that they, so that they could eat without seeing, you know, just like, or eat without hearing, or it wasn't like they were being led around in handcuffs or, you know, like, uh, or, or <laughs> tortured or stuck in a closet or, you know, like, uh, right. I, and I'm not sure that makes it better, or maybe I'm just explaining something that doesn't need to be explained, but, but, uh, there was no concept of like pain or fear or, or, uh, or any of those things, frankly, it was more like the way the impact of how things taste based on when your senses are either uh, minimized or amplified, right? So one of the dishes, which again, is less, you know, headline worthy than uh, handcuffs. I don't actually remember handcuffs, but it's possible that, that they were involved. Um, 
I do remember blindfolding uh, because one of the things was if stuff tastes different when you don't see it. Um, and there was another one again, which is less, let's say, newsworthy, which is where you had sort of a pajamas with one side was sandpaper and one side was felt. And so, <laughs> and so if you, if your food would feel rough, if you rub the sandpaper or smooth, if you felt the felt. So this was real more performance art, like Joseph Boy's uh, and Futurist stuff, which is really Marinetti. Uh, and I think that was pretty, um, yeah, I mean, let's say immature, maybe irresponsible, uh, but definitely not malicious, uh, or at least no. at least not perceived that, you know, like, but who knows, maybe in the context we were just wrong, you know, but I think the idea from us uh, the idea was about do things taste different based on what yeah. you're, uh, what you can feel. I think there have been a lot of more refined variations of that over the years. And this was a sort of a pretty raw zero budget approach to that. Um, mm. but yeah, I think it's interesting. I'm not sure. Sounds, it sounds awkward seeing it on paper. I, I think it's interesting, and I think you guys were uh, way beyond your years, you know. So I, I was just wondering, and, and now I know what your inspiration was, because I, I read some other things like there was a dessert, you know, connected to the Wu-Tang Clan, or there oh, was like always, yeah. some... <laughs> yeah, that's the standard. That's not a rarity. That's the standard, yeah. <laughs> something influenced by the or maybe the syringes inspired by train spotting like different things like that and i know even now when i look at what you do you do a lot of nods to you know cinema and things like that so it's really it's really interesting well and the syringes is like again it's like that's sort of like a kind of i mean i think that's like a barrier right if you have like i mean they weren't for injecting people right they were for injecting oil into financiers and you know, I think we did cheese on a mousetrap and like all of like, I mean, yeah. I think, again, I think of it as being playful. It looks less playful now. And who knows, maybe I'd be horrified. I do remember doing something similar at an event about eight years ago in California and thinking that I was just, it was just ridiculous. And I was way too old <laughs> doing this kind of stuff, wearing silk, silk and sandpaper pajamas, and you know, like, um, but I think, I guess I would say, you know, people have moved on and good for, good for everyone, right? Like that's the, yeah. you know, in terms of yeah. what's acceptable, uh, I think that's positive. We, we embrace that kind of change. Um, but yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, I think that we've always been very cinematic and kind of this idea that it's a, that it's a, you're at a, um, like you're here for a show right? You, you need to have things that are delicious. That's our mm -hmm. job to make them delicious. But, you know, people are here to spend their time with us and they, they would like to be entertained and they would like to be diverted, right? And, and enjoy a couple of hours yeah. in a sort of news-free environment. And I think that was an early way of creating an alternate uh, entertainment, which really isn't, I mean, what we do now is walk people through a medicinal plants garden and through the kitchen, like in Goodfellas. So, I mean, we haven't yeah. really lost anything. And there's a lot of old school hip hop and R&B. But right now we're more in like an MF2 phase. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah I, think, I, I think it sounds better when you say walk and pick, you know, like fresh Balinese herbs. And, you know, it sounds, <laughs> but I mean, but ironically, it's this like, and I think that goes back, by the way, to something that is sort of under, 
appreciated from El Bulli. You know, we used to go to the parking lot and pick eucalyptus leaves for dessert, you know, before service. No one thinks of El Bulli as like a foraging forerunner, but, um, but to me, it was all about, it's all the same thing, right? It's how do you find a good way to share what you're doing? Um, And I think, Mm -hmm. I think the way that we're currently, the way that we've grown, developed and, and sort of become aware of our surroundings and help to share that with the people that come here, um, I, ironically, it sort of both seems like a logical growth, you know, like a growing up from yeah. the stuff that we did before. Um, but it also seems a lot healthier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is good. I mean, I think that's that's not a way. I I think it, I've, I'm sure I've done some stupid things before. And for that, I'm, I'm you know, I, I'm not trying to minimize that by making light of it. Um, no. But yeah, we're uh, we're very conscious of of being a healthy place. Uh, for people to work and to dine. And that's really critical for us in everything that we do, basically. But you, you have said before, you know, that the concept was challenging that, you know, it was multiple courses, like as many as 20. Is that what you were doing? Yeah. I mean, we did that, that, that kind of event was more like a special event. I mean, frankly, it was a special menu for friends and people who had signed up. That wasn't like a randomly show up at this, that was like, uh, this is what we're going to be doing. Are you interested in it? Uh, oh. So I just like to be clear in terms of, well, I think that is relevant actually in terms of sort of awareness yeah. and consent. I mean, this was more a group of friends uh, okay. being invited to experience something that was pretty explicitly outlined, uh, speci- okay. uh, what would be happening. Um, and the everyday food that we were doing in Papillon uh, was more like a four-course menu. I, the, I mean, it, which was another disaster, but primarily because we were, you know, we were in a bar on Hudson Street uh, the weeks after 9-11. I mean, it was a post-apocalyptic lower Manhattan. It was like a really uh, difficult time for for a lot of people, you know, not not the greatest of which were like young chefs and the, you know, from down there. So um, I think there were a lot of challenges for New York around that time. I think that that restaurant, I mean, every restaurant now around the whole world is a four course menu for $50. So I I think that kind of like a mini tasting menu, wine bar food, actually. Yeah. I mean, maybe we were a decade early, but like, um, I think it would have worked great. It was delicious. I mean, Paul's an amazing chef. His his food's absolutely delicious. It was beautiful. I mean, the setting was sort of a mishmash, but that didn't seem to bother people. You know, like 10 years later, I think it would have been considered cool. And back then it was yeah. just considered weird. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, well, thank you for clarifying that. I didn't know that, that, that those dinners were for special like events. Yeah, they totally Got it. Okay. Special events, very clear, separate room from the dining area totally previewed consented described detailed uh, no uh yeah there was no surprise that wasn't like the average dining experience at papillon got it but it became a newsworthy one and again as you you know like that's and that i think sometimes i mean i'm not going to pretend that we weren't aware that that's that that was noteworthy so it was yeah, it was noteworthy but i think i don't know i think it's different controlling it's very challenging to sort of choose a narrative. Um, and sometimes people just like to run with what they like to run with. So that restaurant post and, and for you to bring that up, that's often not part of the narrative as well. Like it was post nine 11. 
Like, yeah, of course. It was, it, we were, it was November 2001. Like, Jeez. it was, it was literally uh, where we used to sit with our friends, very successful restaurateurs who would come into Papillon to have a beer because their restaurants were empty. Uh, wow. Because everything below Canal Street was basically, I mean, I, it was a really difficult time. Again, not, not, we were not the victims of 9 11, right. but, but it created additional challenges for, uh, people at that time, uh, we thought we were doing something sort of fun and, you know, bringing, uh, bringing something downtown. Uh, it was just a tough time. I mean, it was a horrible time for, for so many reasons and for so many people. Um, but yeah, I, yeah. I, I think that was really the, uh, I mean, to me personally, that was the biggest reason why it wasn't successful. But again, it's not as good as of a news story. How are you and Chef LeBrant? Because, you know, I'm sure you're aware of it that you both have these, um, cult followings, you know, people really, Oh yeah. You and him, it's like, where are they? What are they doing? You know, let's make it happen. We, Oh, they're going to, they're going to be here or we need to go to Bali or like last year, chef LeBrant had a, uh, he had a pop-up out here at the surf lodge in Montauk, you know, it's like, you guys just have this timeless cult following. So well, I think Paul's got Paul's got much better, like broodier, uh, you know, like Smith's type uh, setup. I think he's always had like a. I think of him as more cultivating that kind of bad boy, Marco Pierre White, and like detached uh, genius mm-hmm. pro- program. I never really think of. I, I think I'm very boring, <laughs> so I never see myself. <laughs> I never see myself in that context at all. Uh, I, I haven't spoken to Paul for a while, but our relationship's great. From time to time, I get asked about him. I mean, he's a, I think the last interview I gave was just about how good he was at plating food. Um, I know he's bounced around. I think that he had a big movie that was made about him as well. And mm-hmm. um, Look, he's a super talented guy. And I also know him, you know, I was with him at his house with his family and outside of London. And we went to the Fat Duck together at when it was a one-star restaurant, you know, like on our way to a flight in London. And I don't know, we, we like, that was a lot of life ago. Um, yeah. And I think he'd had a tough go at uh, Atlas at the time, which is where I met him before Papillon. Uh, and then since then, I know he's had a couple of big openings and I'm not sure what, what he's currently working on, but I mean, everyone, you know, he's just has a lot of talent and, and people that I would say I would, I don't, I know from a culinary side that there are a lot of chefs who love uh, working with him. A lot of really, really good chefs who really, really love working with him and have have the highest regard for him. And I know that he put together some of the best kitchens in New York. The kitchen at Atlas was amazing. It was like uh, Sam Mason was the pastry chef. You know, like there was just this amazing team. Yeah. I was making salad at Atlas. That was before Papillon. Again, that's not necessarily <laughs> always in the news. But uh, Marco, who opened a restaurant in brooklyn and another chef uh that uh, some of the kids that he brought back to open guilt as well um bobby robert truitt who was with me helped him open cortone you know he's always had this great group of people and super talented kids around jay like all these different guys from new york uh, restaurants and sort of cooks cooks who are not really on the front pages but who have been around just for forever um Yeah. yeah Uh, but yeah, I don't really, we don't communicate much. I think from time to time I might send him an Instagram message or something, but yeah. Um, cool. I'm pretty remote. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> I haven't been to New York for four years, and you know, like it's been a while since I've been back regularly. So I must have seen him when I was coming back in the beginning, like 2009, 10, 11. But I've been here almost 14 years, so I'm kind of a hermit. Well, by 2004, you're working at Crew, yeah, and you're playing it safe. Uh, the the owner says, "Go for it. Be yourself." Despite the owner's encouragement, and this kind of gives, I'm just trying to get an idea of who you are as a person. Um, do you have any gut instinct telling you, don't do it, just continue to Oh, yeah, that was, the, that was the gut instinct and the, and the top line instinct, uh, that it was just a bad idea. And I mean, I, I, mean, I was right. <laughs> like, so, no, but I mean, to be fair, there was a couple of years in the middle. I'd had a really good run uh, at the casting in Maine. I'd had a good couple of years at Morimoto in Philadelphia, um, which was with a great crew as well. Um, I mean, crew was a tough, tough sell as well. It was a tough place for people to find their footing uh, around that mm. time. It was amazing wine list, and, and Shay's a very talented chef. But Roy Wellent is the owner, just a total gentleman and one of the greatest guys. And, you know, he just felt it was the right thing to do. I mean, and, and I, I agree with him in principle that it was the right thing to do, to give it a whirl, right, and see what happens. Um, yeah. And it just didn't work out. But lucky for me, right, that it didn't work out. It's all of those little, totally. all of those little steps and little sort of obstacles on the way sort of helped me to get where I am and also helped me to appreciate where I'm at, so, which is really lucky. Yeah. And, you know, and I don't want to bog down on where you were, you know, but I do want to kind of get to the bigger sure. topic of critics. So that's why I'm talking about this. Of course. So you you don't play it safe and you do an incredible dish. Um, but then this theme of you're not enough comes up again. The critic reaction well, was I bad. Think, I think the theme was more you're too much. <laughs> <laughs> I think I went from not enough to too much very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So we hear uh, the New York Post, you know, headline that is in Chef's Table, and it's always kind of in your narrative, yeah. in your story, Great. you know. And Steve, Steve Quazzo is still around. He's still there, <laughs> still slinging, still slinging it. <laughs> Hiring you was the worst decision in New York that year. It's pretty good, and I you mean, knew your. It's pretty strong, pretty strong statement. It's a very strong statement. So I kind of want to get to critics and talking about them um, because today I don't, you know, that was a uni unique time back then. And I yeah. don't know if today, if that would be, I mean, we still have shitty reviews out there and critics that come up with phrasing, but that phrasing is, is really one for the books and the words are brutal and really not necessary. Um, you know, for me, it's one thing to be a critic. Those words are beyond the role of a critic, in my opinion, yeah. um, kind of almost inhumane and this critic is directly affecting a person's life. Yeah. Um, and I kind of want to, so I, I want to ask you, can you reflect back on that time? Sure. Explain how it felt to have a critic, have, have that much power and control over your life. But also before we started recording, we were talking about um, 
just protecting your life, your, your family, things like that. And these are the things that I don't know if we've still learned today uh, that critics do have this, this power and is it necessary? Well, I think so much has changed. So I'll try to give a little context, but also in terms of where we are now. I mean, look, I I don't have any ill will towards Steve. He's still around. I messaged him after that. I forget for what. And it was sort of a no hard feelings. I had a similar exchange with uh, Frank Bruni a few years later, who's a total gentleman and a great writer who said some things about me that were super harsh. And I don't know, it never really I mean, I look at it as they were doing their job. So, and I don't mean that in like a Nuremberg, like he, they were just following orders. I mean, they were just doing their job. Like they, they were trying to sell newspapers, you know? So I don't think of it as, I mean, I think it's, I think we ascribe uh, power to a critic, but again, that age where that's true is not anymore. So those, those critics are pretty irrelevant right now to the functioning of the restaurant world. So I feel like that issue sort of resolved itself. Uh, with mm. with publishing being like completely dismantled by information technology. So I don't think it just really matters anymore. But the irony of that is like, I've heard much worse things from people on anonymous reviews online. Because <laughs> so, so, so I think it's like, you know, sometimes, you know, which one, you know, keep the, the devil, you know, right? Um, I, I, I much prefer to be able to write Steve Quazo and say, I thought you were out of line than to like have, you know, ID nine 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 uh say that this is a hard you know like and make up something like i mean at least those were like factual or opinions right like i've had yeah. people I, i've had I, you wouldn't believe some of the stuff that i've read online about us ad room for dessert in that it's like that's not even true there's no more fact checking and anyone is a critic right so so I had someone say some tri- horrible things a couple of years ago. And I was like, you just can't do this. But you, there's no, right? It's who is it? It's someone anonymous in some other country. And then it's right. online. And then it's, you know, we're lucky that we haven't been the victim of anything, uh, any big uh, controversy. But I mean, I think that's the power has been moved. I mean, these critics are, are, have largely been replaced in the public sphere in terms of being relevant. Um, with a few exceptions, you know, like Pete Wells, obviously, I mean, the New York Times review is still the New York Times review, but I mean, I, I think there are so many other ways that people can now communicate. I think when we were in New York was just the beginning of Yelp. I don't know if TripAdvisor is a thing in the States. It's absolutely enormous here. Um, but even all of that has been replaced by Instagram. And I guess now there's probably some other social media, which I don't even know about, or that's a more contemporary, but I mean, Instagram has sort of replaced the, the, the internet, let alone which replaced magazines. So, you know, all like, I, I don't know. I, I actually long for the days of a critic, like who's, who's the educated. No, like at least they're being paid to have an opinion about something that they're knowledgeable about. I think that's yeah. great. I mean, yeah, again, right. it's like, be careful what you wish for. You know, you, you vote all the critics out of office. They're replaced by, right? The average person and which is, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. We cook for everyone that comes to the restaurant. So I'm not implying that people shouldn't have an opinion, but I think there is a place for criticism. I mean, food critics, I mean, you know, Florence Fabricant is a great writer. You know, she knows more, she's forgotten more about food than most people will ever know. Um, there are, there are a lot of great food writers and journalists who have been breaking a lot of really interesting stories in New York specifically. Uh, and, 
storytelling. And I think, I don't know, I'm a big fan of the press. So I think that people should be able to write whatever they want. Um, And from my side, I look at it as, well, we're, you know, you live and die by the sword. You can't ask for attention and then complain when you get it. So if it's not the attention that you wanted, then, you know, tough. (laughs) Just wait, you know, go do like, I don't know, that's sort of my, you know, try something else. (laughs) Wow. For you to have that uh, evolved sense, I mean, I'm learning from you. Well, if I could be five five percent of you, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure that's a recipe for happiness, but but it's uh, I don't know. I, I I like I I it definitely didn't feel good at the time. I mean, right. I was in the hospital reading those reviews while my daughter was being born. You know, it was like a fairly high stress moment, uh, and it wasn't like a relaxing uh, period. I'm not pretending like I enjoyed the process of it, uh, right. but. But I'm happy. Again, I think it's possible to experience things that you don't wish upon others, but are still formative. So, and I guess absolutely to me that's formative, and I don't wish it upon others. And I think I don't think you can get away with that in the same way now. Uh, but you know, look, plenty of people getting criticized all the time. Uh, it doesn't seem to have gone out of style, uh, if any. No. So. I don't, again, I think this comes back to like my perception of myself. I know there's a lot of talk about being excellent or blah, 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 or being the best. I don't, I just look at myself as a normal, boring person. And mm-hmm. so like that stuff, it just is, you know, there's no real, like it's, my opinion about it is not that relevant. Um, that yeah. was something my dad always is like, you know, you can be outraged. Just no one cares. You know? <laughs> like, right. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody like there's nothing wrong with being outraged. It's just nobody cares. No, might as well. It's true. Might as well just get on with it. Like it doesn't really, <laughs> it doesn't really, uh, you know. And at the t- again, that's easy to say that 25 years later. You know, I'm sure, and I'm sure if you ask my wife or people that care about me, like it's always different. And I think this is something else important, and which is it's always different when you're the one going through it, right? It's always surreal, mm-hmm. and you sort of ignore it. And we've alluded to that. Although, let's say you know, with regards to Chef's Table, it's like this fantastical experience, right? It's very surreal to be involved or to see yourself on a screen. It's so, such a strange experience that it's just easier to sort of just disassociate and just move on. Um, goes a little bit to what you said before about how you deal with these things. It's like, well, I mean, if you're not dissuaded by either the negatives or the positives, then you're probably pretty healthy. Yeah, um, absolutely. So I think that I've, I'm not sure that I've managed that so well over X number of years, but it's, it's something that I'm always trying to do better at um, and sort of yep. not get, you know, we've had a lot of success in the last like three months, you know, we've had like the, but, but the, it, you know, it's the same approach, right? Which is you still, if, if, if people really do think you're great, then you better work hard to make sure that you are. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think even now that's sort of irrelevant, right? Which is you should really just be worrying about like if you're providing a great environment for the people that uh, work for you, for the people in your community mm-hmm. and for the people that come to the restaurant, which is much more important. Um, and I don't know, it strikes me as a healthy way, but who knows, maybe in 20 years we'll have evolved into a higher state and you know, I'll be floating, we'll yeah. be floating uh, somewhere. <laughs> I'll be at the beach. I'll be at the, I'll be at our beach bar in Tahiti serving draft beer. <laughs> cheers to that (laughs) well by 2005 you're tired um 
you've just been through a lot. You considered yourself toxic in a way. I think you're kind of in your head at this point. You're considering a string of failures. Um, There's an ad in Craigslist for a new dessert bar. You meet with investors. They give you a pretty good offer. And it's a chance to have your own place where dessert is the main event. And so you open room for dessert. It's a 20-seat dessert tasting counter in lower Manhattan. I want you to go back and kind of break down the opening process of room for dessert, both mentally, how you overcame any thoughts or past failures in your head, and also from an operational standpoint, what was it like to open your own place in New York City? Um, I mean, I think basically my wife just said, you know, you have to open your own place. So that was why I did it instead of instead of uh, taking a private chef job. I mean, I had a lot of job offers, actually, but nothing. But it was more just stepping out of the circuit for a moment. Um, and she was pretty it was pretty clear to her that that was the only way for me to be satisfied. Um, and I mean, I, I think she's always right. She's still she's still always right. So. It's a it's it was it's a common trend that's oh, more than two decades, so it's now twenty one years, because we actually met right at that time after after nine eleven. That's what we met because I answered an ad. Well, before Craigslist was the Village Voice, so I answered an mm-hmm. ad in the Village Voice, but that was in uh, October two thousand and one. So I think look, we I've always felt that there's like. The, and this is also a test kitchen approach, like as opposed to a restaurant approach, right? Like in a restaurant approach, you want, I don't know, 90% of everything perfect or 99% or, you know, whatever it is. And if you work in a test kitchen, you know, you expect 99 failures, right? And one success. So it's a very different approach to getting something. Um, and I've tried to sort of flip flop back and forth in that and keep being ambitious and do things that are worth doing. And be very open and sincere about it. Um, I think opening a restaurant in New York was challenging, but it was fun. I mean, it was a small place. It was super fun. I mean, it was 2005, six, seven. You know, I think now people are very nostalgic for that time. Like our playlist here is like the yeah, yeah, yeahs and the strokes. And, you know, like <laughs> that's a, you know, there's sort of that missing moment of New York, like just before, you know, and everybody feels that way, right? It was, it was perfect just until you got mm-hmm. here and then now it's terrible, you know. Now it's too commercial, mm-hmm. right? Now, now everything's too commercial. Everybody says that in Bali too, by the way. It was great. <laughs> it was great like last year, you know, before it got to a touristy. And three months ago, it was perfect. And now it's terrible. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I, I enjoyed opening it. I, I thought it was a great place. And we had a lot of fun. We had a great team. We cooked some really good stuff. And, and we really connected with people. They really enjoyed coming. Like that was the great feeling was like, you know, when it's, it's one of those things, you have a place and people want to go. Like that's the best. I mean, that's the, mm-hmm. I forget the fancy terms, but that's, you know, all the receptors go off. Life and y- you finally receive a great review. Yes, that's true. So Peter, what does that Peter feel like? Meehan. From Peter Meehan. And what does that feel like? great best moment of best moment best moment of my yeah. career at that point no question and from there you are the first pastry chef to be profiled in the new yorker and when the new york article comes out room for dessert is not considered a restaurant but they say that you're a cultural activity so different people start coming can you talk about the clientele that starts coming in and if that changes your daily service or anything 
Well, it just it becomes a very New York moment, you know, which is really great. Whether it's people from arts or literature or film or or all or entertainment and all. I mean, we weren't like we were never, never, never a celebrity place. It was more like the geeky celebrity, you know, like it was more like yeah. it was more like people that we admired, you know, like Wes Anderson or Tom Sachs, you know, like people that are like they're you know they're famous for being like iconic. They're not famous for being famous. Uh, so right. people like that are, I mean, I don't know, that's, what's cooler than that. Like I, that's the, I mean, that's pretty much it. I, I don't know. I, those are people like having people come in and, and thinking it's worth coming to and sharing it. You know, we always had a lot of chefs coming in. Um, I'm sure we had other, but we also just had a lot of people, which is always like, right. It's nice for people to be busy in a restaurant. You know, it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword, right? It's really nice when people come. It's not so nice when they don't. I mean, they're like, but yeah. you, you don't get to experience one without the other. And, and they don't mean as much. You know, a full restaurant doesn't mean as much unless you know what an empty one feels like. Um, and, right. I, and I think that's, uh, and I think that's good. I, I enjoy that experience. I, I, I really, that was a great moment. I mean, we, we chased that for years, basically. And then we got it. And then it was like, well, now what do we do? <laughs> <laughs> so. In Chef's Table, it seems like uh, I think you said something like around this time that all of a sudden you're getting flown around the world. Yeah, uh, you're you're nominated for a James Beard Award. Yep. Uh, a, a lot of energy, a lot of big energy, abundance just surrounding you. Yeah, we were in Milan, Melbourne, like all these places in like one week. Wow. In retrospect, you say at that time you became absorbed in your own importance. And I mean, that made sense to me. Attention can be a form of currency in a way. It can be highly addictive. It's, it's almost human nature to get caught up in, in it. So I wanted to kind of touch on talking about the intoxicating rise to fame. Did it affect your life? Did it not? What is that like? I mean, I don't, I just think I was too young to, or to, I don't, I don't want to make excuses. I think that's very boring. I would just say, let's say maybe I was just too immature to handle it better. I mean, I feel like that's something where, and it just means it wasn't meant to be at that moment, right? That's the, I, I, I think that it was just too much going on to manage effectively and to keep things in perspective. But yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't regret it. I, I'm happy because, again, it made me appreciate getting a second crack at it, you know, I, which I always think is nice. I, I, I'm not really, I'm not very big on looking back at, I don't feel like I've had all of these terrible obstacles. I always feel like it's, I mean, frankly, I feel like I've been pretty blessed with a lucky and great career. Um, and I've had, my highs are pretty high. I mean, like, uh, at least for me, they've always been like really, really great. Um, and the lows are still pretty okay. I mean, you know, we're here in Bali. It's a pandemic. I mean, the island is closed, but it, like we're still ticking. You know, we're still here. Like, there's no real. It's just that those, you know, like just being boringly, you know, mundane. Like, you know, mundane is not a great. It's again going back to like the narrative, right? It doesn't. Just getting through the day is not a big story, right? Um, but but that's most of the time we're talking about. I mean, it's 2022, right? And we're like most right. of the time between 2001 and 2022 is just being. And then there's you know a couple of blips, a couple of big highs, a couple of big lows. But more or less, it's been a pretty good ride. I don't know. I think yeah. I think that it it's been. I've been super lucky. It's been a great ride. What's your advice to someone, maybe a chef 
a 30 year old chef who's going through that now and dealing with that. Do you have looking back any perspective of advice that you can give to someone who's dealing with all of that sudden fame? I don't know. I don't think I'm a good person to give advice about anything. Uh, I know from my experience that when I worried about the work, everything is okay. And when I worried about other things, it was less okay. So that would Mm. be my, that would be my sort of detached uh, suggestion, which is like, if you're just making stuff at the end of the day, people are going to pay attention if it's good and all the other things really don't matter, frankly. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. They come and go, and like it doesn't really matter, right? I mean, yeah. I had two good years out of twenty, and I'm like supposedly right this year. We got the award for being the best, right? So that's like, so okay, you, so I got two peaks out of t- two decades, you know, like which is pretty, right. and <laughs> that's amazing, right? Like I'm the most successful, like right, as opposed to zero. So yeah, I think I should have probably enjoyed it a bit more. I think if looking back, that's a, I guess I would say. That's the advice I give to people that are going through it. Then I say to them, like, just have fun. Don't, no, mm-hmm. Nobody cares. You know what I mean? Like, it'll all be over, right? What is, the, what is it? Like, today's newspapers or tomorrow's uh, waste bins or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's a little different with the internet, but actually it's worse, right? It's like, you're irrelevant. Literally, fi- your 15 minutes of fame are like one swipe. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. They've become, they've become 15 milliseconds, right? So, so. Yeah. You're irrele- I was in I was in Europe in October. There was like a throwback Thursday to the awards, like a week before. <laughs> <It wasn't> like, <laughs> I was like, "How is this already a throwback? Like this was just Friday. <laughs> I can't believe I've been." You know, you, you become obsolete, and then you're nostalgic in like 96 hours. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't know. I enjoy that, and that's a beautiful thing of living here. Is just nobody cares. I mean, it doesn't matter. Yeah. If there's no newspaper. So either people come or they don't, but that's it. It's just, it's kind of refreshing actually. Yeah. Well, it's almost like your journey has been preparing you for this, you know, for the, you're like, it's refreshing that, you know, people don't care here. Well, you're kind of years ahead of us in your journey because you were forced to like, after you're on this high and all of this energy, then all of a sudden your partners decide to close the restaurant. Yes, not I so, not my best day. No, not your best day, but there you go. It's it's like it was preparing you for this continuous, you know, things things are fleeting. Things are fleeting. Enjoy the moment and then poof, it could be gone tomorrow. The general life advice that we all need to be living like, you know? Yeah, I mean it helps if you actually lose everything. Like, you know, it's again, not let's say suffering not recommended, but you know, certainly uh form- yeah. formative <laughs> um and i definitely know, like i'm super lucky with i feel so happy with where i am now the idea that somehow that was a negative to me doesn't make any sense uh it just right. it just worked out great uh right. it, like everything worked out the way it was supposed to right everything's great uh it just totally. at, but at the time yeah it was a disaster i mean it was a it was a total nightmare it was like my worst nightmare yeah um, and it and it catches you off guard completely when they close. Oh, I don't know. It's never really. It's nothing's ever really like. You have to be pretty. I mean, I'm pretty self-absorbed, but I'm not that self-absorbed. Like you know, I, I'm not. Or let's say I'm at least aware of my surroundings. <laughs> like I may I may disregard them, but I'm not like you know. You have to be pretty detached to not know what's going on when people aren't happy or whether when you're not happy, right? You need to just be able to. And then it's just about if you're lucky enough to figure out how to deal with it. 
So it closes and you're devastated in that moment. Yes, very. So many highs and lows happening and your wife who is seems like this guiding light that just kind of picks up on things and and then says let's do says hey maybe it's time to get out of new york yeah she was right um she was right (laughs) (laughs) why do you need to feel like the world is against you you know what's the price of all this ambition and money and all these things so I imagine there's a lot of big questions. I don't know about the meaning of life or why is this happening to me or I'm pissed or, you know, all of these things are going through your head, I imagine. And you can touch on if anything else was happening. But when looking at a map, ultimately, why did you guys choose Bali? Uh, There was a uh, it was for preschool for our daughter. Really? We were looking for an alternative to the Upper East Side. And we and wow. and my wife found an alternative to the Upper East Side. It was just, you know, we were in Queens. So, like, it was either, you know, go left to the F train or go right to LaGuardia. Uh, and then, yeah. So, we, wow. well, right, technically, I think we must have flown from Kennedy. But, yeah, it was, uh, which is also to the right. <laughs> but, yeah, it was, uh, we went right. We took, a, we took an extra 22 to 24 hours. Uh, and we just kept going. What about, was there a specific school or just the lifestyle? What drew? Yeah, we were just looking, she was just looking for a change. We didn't want to be, we didn't like, I mean, I don't know. I don't like to be critical. We love New York and it's always been wonderful, but there was just a certain, I think you've seen this in restaurants and I'm sure it's true in schools and just it's, everything's become so expensive in New York. Uh, and I'm, that, that didn't start like yesterday, but it also wasn't the same in the eighties. Uh, it, it wasn't the same in the nineties and all of a sudden it became mm. really, it became a different experience, uh, that was really based only on money and like those sort of, uh, less expensive activities that you associate with sort of social life in New York and sort of, you know, where it's still cool to be poor, like, you know, rent or like with the, right. that kind of like you know, it it was still cool to be poor in New York in the nineties. Like nobody cared. It was, it wasn't even, it wasn't Mm -hmm. like anyone was in Brooklyn yet. It was just, you're just in this, some shitty bar in the East village, like, which is great. Like, I don't know. It seemed very accessible. That evolved very, very quickly, uh, in the two thousands. And, you know, by 2006, seven, like things, it was just, it was just moving in a direction that didn't seem like something we were going to enjoy. And it was, you know, I guess Brooklyn or Bali. Right. And I think at that point, you know, we, uh, I don't know. I think Bali seems pretty good. Weather-wise, it's very favorable. Um, no, it's amazing. <laughs> I, I'm just trying to understand why not um, Why not somewhere in the Bahamas or Puerto know. Rico. Or do you know what I mean? Like, really Bali is so... You can't do excess by half, right? I mean, you need to, you need to like, <laughs> you need to go all the... I mean, if you're going to go, go, right? I mean, that's the... Yeah. Go as far... I know that's uh, that's our philosophy. If you're going to leave, you might as well leave. Make it count. Yeah. Well, in New York, you were burnt out. You weren't really happy. You didn't have the time and space to reflect on what you were doing. You walk away from your house, your career, and you land in Bali. And I like how you described it in Chef's Table. You say it's hot. It's loud. It forces you to pay attention to what you're doing in that moment. And it sounds like Bali forced you in a way to live in the present moment. So 
I want to know, tell me about relocating to Bali. You land there and what happens next? Are you renting a home? Are you in a hotel? Is it like an extended vacation for a bit? Do you know anyone there? Um, I'll see how much I can get through. I would, I would just say, I think, I think just to, to your previous line, I mean, I think that's something that the Chef's Table episode ca- captured very clearly, which was like, that was a really, really bad moment, <laughs> you know, being in New York and getting to Bali was like a real, like dramatic change that was very necessary and very cathartic. And I think what you allude to and what I also think that the the team, the production team from Chef's Table, who are absolutely amazing, really captured is like Bali's just very vivid. You know, everything's very alive. It's not like a very, it's not a place to be passive. You know, it's very active. It's just very bustling and yeah. very active. And I think that's really I've really enjoyed that. Um, and I think in your question, you really alluded to like time and space. And, and that's really what's carved out the most, uh, the best experiences here is having time and space, right? Having eight years, you know, for the restaurant to be good, having five years before it's on that on chef's table, you know, like getting that would never happen in New York, like a five year run up, uh, you know, so I really appreciated that. Uh, because it's the opposite of what we went through in New York, right? Where it's like opening night is five seatings that, you know, like it's just instant. Uh, and again, I love that. And I love that about New York, that immediacy. I, I'm not afraid of it. And I, but I think it definitely leads a different type of quality. Whereas like, uh, it's not methodical, right? To, to, to it's, it's exciting and it's, I think it's necessary. Uh, but I also think there's another type of development that happens uh, with different time and space. And I'm really happy. I've, I mean, I've had both experiences. I feel super blessed, right? It, it took, I expected to be reopening Room for Dessert in, in uh, November 2007 at the original location. And instead, I opened it in 2014 in the middle of nowhere in Ubud. So it took, it took seven years, you know. But so again, that's like there's another seven years in there. Like that's a long middle. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. of like trying to get everything back, trying to get physically back in condition to have another run at it. You know what I mean? Trying to get back in the kitchen, mm-hmm. trying to get back sharp. You know, you get old quick in the kitchen and in the restaurant world, let alone if you sort of self-isolate in the middle of nowhere. But um, I don't know. We got really lucky. We caught a break. Well, being somewhere new where nobody cares about you is very humbling. That's great. At this point, you're right. <laughs> it's great. It's very right? relaxing. But but at this point, you're coming off of the high of being surrounded by lots of attention. And so now in Bali, you're surrounded by nature, temples, spirituality is around you, whether you're spiritual or not. Are you exploring your ego since you've kind of felt like you might have been a little bit self-absorbed in New York towards the end? Or perhaps are you you know, on a spiritual journey? Are you, I don't think, it are was you using this time? I, I don't think consciously on a spiritual journey, I think it just evolved, uh, you know, mm-hmm. right. If you just go away and have space and time to think, I don't think I ever sat around and said, I need to work on my ego management. I mean, that would have been a good idea. Uh, but I didn't, I don't think I was that self-aware, uh, 14 years ago. Uh, I think I can speak more clearly about it now and I could say, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm checking in and I'm on my, uh, right. I'm, I'm learning about, uh, the sources of, uh, all of this, you know, all of this things that you sort of come to 
or not come to. Uh, but yeah, at the time, I think it was more just survival and, you know, resurface and try to get back in. And I think probably I went about it in the same old kind of broken ways. Uh, but, but again, that's, that's even from now, that's, that's 14 years ago. Like, it's kind of amazing. Right. It seems like such another life. Um, but, but no, it took a couple of years to get back on track to see what was necessary to, you know, to get up the desire to, well, not just the desire, but to get, you know, to get some money to be able to open a place again. It wasn't like that was a, we weren't in a position to, to open when we came here. So it was just about getting back on the horse a bit and seeing what was going on. Um, and I, yeah. at first I was really impatient and then the longer I waited, the more patient I got. Hmm. Interesting. Well, you mentioned nobody is reading any New York papers in Bali and (laughs) you're, you're far away from it all. Um, and at this point you maybe, I don't know how long in maybe a few months, you, you know, I'll let you answer in a minute, but I imagine you start to have the time and you've got the desire, maybe mental clarity at some point to want to play with some new ingredients. And in Bali, everything is fresh growing around you. You're surrounded by cacao, coffee, sugar, vanilla, cinnamon, nutmeg, rice, every type of produce. How soon after arriving do you start playing with ingredients and having fun? And how does that feel? Uh, I think the first couple of years, it sort of trickled in. And then by three or four years in, I was really like getting very into it. And it took a minute. It felt amazing. And it was just, it, I don't know, it took time to get acclimated and sort of readjust and recalibrate everything that we were doing to what was here and take a new direction. And I don't know, it's just such a special place to be. Yeah, I think it evolved over the first few years. And we kind of, I opened a restaurant for the venue that I was working at at the time as a consultant. And really got into the food and the ingredients and the sources and the processes and starting to really, yeah, to just really make it feel like a new style uh, and reflective of what's around us and, and sharing that kind of, I mean, we started working on even the medicinal traditions back then that's 2012. Uh, So the same book that we used to plant our medicinal plants garden here is now 10 years uh, and we planted it um, 2019. So it took another seven years to put that into practice. I tend to have a fairly long, uh, I don't know what the word is. I don't know if it's gestation or, but anyway, I have a long amount of time when stuff sort of sits around. I'm very comfortable with a long amount of time, uh, like where we're going to do something and then it happens. Uh, If that's Mm -hmm. seven years, then it's just seven years. I mean, that's just what it is. So, Mm. so. And we just stick, I I don't know, I'm I'm pretty comfortable sticking with things. Yeah. Um, So... It doesn't really affect me the, that much. I don't mean in the moment, like the disappointments and all of the things that we've kind of cataloged. It's not like they're less severe. They're, they're totally severe. They just don't have that much effect on what I end up doing. Yeah, I'm just comfortable just, just getting on with it and coming back and, you know, like really uh, sticking with things. You know, like if it's worth doing, then it should still be worth doing, yeah. right? And then, and then, and it doesn't really knock me off stride. Uh, at all to not get it it just doesn't actually yeah. have any effect on me i, I mean that's <laughs> probably not to my benefit other times you know there's other shortcomings or you know that hasn't always been the best way to treat my body as i get older but uh but the but in the, but mentally it's helped a lot 
just sort of just get up, yeah. just get up and do it again and just get on with it. And, and not, and again, that's the irony of seeing, you know, seeing it on paper, seeing it written down or seeing it in question form or talking about it sort of seems very dramatic and, and big and obvious and bad or great or all those things. And then obviously when you're living it, it's just sort of like, just wake up tomorrow and, you know, go to work, you know, like that's, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of like, just get up and go to work, you know, like go and then go do stuff and then do your best. And, and then when that's over, you go home and then you go do it again. Totally. I kind of, I kind of enjoy that, um, habit. I, I, I like, yeah. that. I like that habit actually. It feels very relaxing to me. Even when it's terrible, yeah. it's actually oddly relaxing. Was the plan always for you to open a restaurant in Bali or did you consider earning money in a completely different way? I guess, did you consider getting out of the industry altogether at any point? Oh, I always consider getting out of the industry uh, every, every couple of years. Not lately. It's been really enjoyable, actually, the last several years. But uh, in general, I mean, yeah, I've always had a foot, a foot out. But I think after losing my restaurant, I just was very disappointed. Uh, and I, I wasn't satisfied with the way that I had left it. And I felt that that was important for me to uh, redo. And so, and I think at that point, like in 2018, after sort of everything, you know, like, right, the fantasy of the place and, and the show, that was the point where I could have walked away again. Uh, but it was just too much fun to stick with it. So, uh, and it was yeah. like, you know, when it actually finally works, it seems silly to walk away. So I figured we'd just stick yeah. with it just keep doing it and it's been no I, i've really i i really uh it took seven years like i said to get it back but and then it took another five uh for it to actually work so you know just the first those middle 12 years were fairly long but it didn't really change my target that not that doesn't mean every day was a cakewalk but but um it seemed to work pretty well i mean it's funny talking about like old interview questions about you know, being the best, which is like sort of silly and childish and ego, egomaniac version, right? And then I think that's even some of the criticisms of the show, like of me on the show, is just like where it's all about ego. I think that was one of the big criticisms of the Netflix show. But like the irony is that it's the opposite. You know, it's just it's just about still being around and just getting on with it. But then, of course, when you ignore all of that stuff and then getting an award like saying you're the best is kind of funny. <laughs> Well, actually, my takeaway from watching it, it, it's funny that you say there's criticisms with that, because the takeaway that I had generally was, here's where you were, and then Bali, here's where you are, and the ego is not there. So that's interesting, the different takeaways. Um, I, and I you mean, know what? And then, the benefit for me is like, I mean, the story's real, so like, I, I can't control how people interpret it. Like, and I, I just try to be no. as open and transparent as possible, and and sort of like, and again, just still keep, just like I said, just keep showing up. You know, like that's the my job is to keep showing up. You know, like all of the other stuff, like your your take or this take or that. Like, there's nothing that I can do or or want to do. Like, I, I'm not. I, I, it's yeah. that's that's not my job. Like I'm just no. supposed to come in and make stuff, take care of the, take care of the people that work here, you know, make sure they're safe and fed and healthy and their families are okay. Yep. You know, like that's like, so, I mean, I'm very comfortable with that. I enjoy that actually. And mm -hmm. I'm, it's very satisfying. Yeah. Uh, and everything else totally. is like, it's just gravy, you know, it's super nice. I mean, I don't, yeah. like I said, it, I, I, 
it would be ridiculous. I love this stuff. I think it's super fun. It's great to get like stuff where you get to go around and like, I don't know, get opportunity or go meet cool people. Like I, I love it. I'm not trying to minimize the highs any more than I was trying to minimize the lows before. It's just, I've right. always, I've always tried to not let them affect what I'm doing. And, you know, let's say with varying degrees of success. When you decide to get back in the kitchen, nobody in Bali knows anything about you. So is there a freedom in that, that you felt? Yeah. I mean, it's always a double-edged sword, right? You always want the benefit of people knowing who you are without the, without the stress. No? And so, I mean, you either have to just choose to enjoy it and say, well, that's good. I don't think I'm, and it does help. Again, I, I don't think that I'm so special. I've had good opportunities and good experience, and I've tried to make the most of them. Uh, I don't think that's different from any number of people that I know uh, that have been in this industry with varying degrees of success. Some of them you've heard of, and some of them no one will ever hear of. But, the, you know, it's a lottery, I think, to a certain extent, and I'm very comfortable with that. And I've, I've been super lucky, uh, twice, actually. Um, but in terms of the... In terms of that, I don't know, it's it's nice, it's very relaxing. But, you know, again, when you need attention, it's, it's more challenging, right? Because you need people to come if you have a restaurant. So I think we had this amazing feature from Howie Khan. I don't know if you know Howie, he's a great uh, yeah. writer. So he did a, yeah. a huge story, like seven pages for the Wall Street Journal magazine. I think this is like 2014. And okay. like one person read it in Indonesia. You know, like if you were in New York, it would have been like the New Yorker right. article. And, and we were in right. Bali and one person was like, oh, did you see that? I was like, what? Like, and then people that I worked for were like, that, like, they were like, how did you get anyone to write a story about you? Like, what could you possibly have done that would make them interested? Um, you know, I think I yeah. like, I think Lisa, Lisa Aben wrote a small story when I first came to Bali. She's amazing. And she's had an amazing career and how he wrote this big thing. And I think, you know, it's sort of like an awakening, like it's like both I'm relevant and I'm irrelevant at the same time. And I think that's, uh, you know, it's, uh, I don't know, I find that very relaxing. Yeah, no, I can imagine. It's a nice balance. For someone like you, I mean, you're just, you're world renowned. So I think it's a healthy balance for you. Um, you decide to open room for dessert outside Ubud. Yes. What's the process of opening a restaurant in Bali? Is there a lot of red tape to cut through with the government? How long does this, well, I think you said it took about seven years from concept to opening day or longer. 12. Well, yeah, but there were, I mean, that, that wasn't exactly building issues. That was, you know, I had to get some money. I had to be healthy, you know, have an opportunity to do it. So. Uh, I don't think that wasn't seven years of red tape. That was seven years of <clears throat> seven years of getting ready uh, in various ways. Yeah. But the, I think that the, it's a pretty uh, regulation forward environment <laughs> for new business development. Um, but but manageable. I mean, New York is pretty regulation forward. Uh, as far as restaurant openings go, and it's pretty much the same everywhere. Some things are expensive, some things are not. They're, it's sort of the same. You know, you need a permit, you need a rent, you need a space. And it's a. Uh, but it was. We had some interesting adventures along the way. We lost the space actually that we had been planning on and had moved into a year before, like the around Christmas of 2013. And that's 
I went up the street to get a drink at uh, Warang, and then that's when they were putting up the for rent sign here at Room for Dessert. Uh, what's now Room for Dessert back then was just a horrible coffee shop, but it had previously been a really horrible nightclub. Uh, but that was just a totally random accident and like where it could have been a devastating day where we lost our restaurant. It turned into like the absolute perfect location where we've been able to sort of grow for these uh, last eight years. Well, now coming on, it's June will be the eighth year, eighth anniversary. But we've been on this location since uh, uh, Christmas 2013. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing, right? It's uh, every decade. Get yeah. You get to be an overnight success again. <laughs> <laughs> i mean soon, soon i'll be 50 you, i got we got i think we received a discovery award last year it's like you know, if you get, if you, get a- <laughs> you hold a ceremony at the restaurant before opening to clear the past and welcome in new energy in that moment did you feel any positive energy or did you feel that you were really embarking on a fresh chapter yeah, I think that, I mean, I think it's hard to live here. I mean, you have to be pretty closed off to not sort of absorb what's going on around you. Uh, and lucky for us, you know, it is, it's very humbling to be in a beautiful ceremony, whatever, you know, whatever you believe in. Uh, it's just nice to see people that are so passionate about what they're doing. It's always, it's so beautiful. Bali is yeah. such a beautiful place and the people are really special. And it's really worth, uh, you know, just taking a time and enjoying that. It's, and if you can't do that, then it's not a great place to be. The connection between ingredients and the dishes you're serving are symbiotic at your restaurant. Diners, as you mentioned, are walking through gardens. They're being served the plants that they just touched. That's right. You've described it as your contemporary interpretation of the plant world that's around us, which has been so critical to life. And it's totally integrated with our menu. So I'd love for you to bring us there and give us an audio journey to your live garden apothecary. Wow, that's a tough one. I should, I think you need a video journey. We need to get you actually. I know. Look, it's this, you know, we're this little sort of 30 seat dessert bar. That's surrounded now by a thousand square meters of medicinal plants garden. So what's that about ten thousand square feet? We just planted a new two thousand square meters, so another twenty thousand square feet, and we're planting another ten. And actually, we're trying to plant another hundred and fifty over the coming years. Um, so there's a hundred and twenty types of medicinal plants that you walk through on the right, which takes you to the nursery where we do all of the seed work for the restaurant, and the other side is all fruit trees. So we planted about 60 trees three years ago, and we're going to plant another 60 trees uh, this year. And so it's like a little bar. I mean, it's basically the same thing as New York, except, you know, in the middle of the jungle. And it, yeah. it's, uh, you know, everything is, every dish is built around a plant that we grow. And we work, this menu is built off of the scraps from the trimming of the garden, because as I learned from my wife, you can't harvest a garden. You need to just trim it because if you harvest it, then it's mm-hmm. gone and you don't have anything in the garden. Uh, so, so we needed, so we trim our garden as appropriate. And then those products go to our test kitchen. That's how we develop our dishes for the menu. But yeah, everything starts with a sort of walk through the garden and the nursery and sitting down to snacks in the backyard. Like you were coming to our house 
and then we bring inside the original dining room, uh, which is where I'm sitting right now, which is a little bit dark uh, during the day. And that's where we have the desserts. And then we bring you out to the terrace or by the fire for petty fours and after dinner drinks. So it's more like spending a night in our little garden wonderland. And uh, mm-hmm. we're hoping to even expand it and make it more whimsical and fantastical and garden driven. And it's just sort of watch this space um, and see what we can pull wow. off in the coming years. Awesome. After you moved to Bali, back in New York, people are asking, where's Will Goldfarb? And you mentioned there was a really good article that Howie wrote, and there was another an article. So this is before, this is around 2014, this is before Chef's Table right. that these articles are coming out. Yeah, I think, Lisa, um, I think Lisa's was maybe 2012. Well, but it could have been a little earlier. It could have been 2011. And Howie, I think, was 2013 or 2014. But yeah. How do do those articles make any impact? Do you start getting people hitting you up, writing emails? Like, what do you see from those? Nothing? So would you say that you did have some press, maybe a couple articles, but would you say that the big the big press that, that makes your comeback is that chef's table to you yeah no question i mean no question that was the that was the bomb uh i mean that was such an amazing experience and such a like it's such a cultural moment chef's table everything about it is just so important and it's so interesting and so and so well done uh yeah that i don't think there's any question uh i don't think there's any question that that was like a taking it to a different place. Yeah. And, but again, that's that's 2018, right? So I'd been here for nine years. Room for dessert had been open for five years and actually we filmed it a year before it came out. So we'd already like known for a year. So it was like, you know, that's a lot of, and that's, so by that point it's 12 years after closing room for dessert in New York. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> what good come, it's a good comeback very dramatic it's an amazing comeback it's it's one for the records what is never, like, the never, moment never do anything do you, halfway you know that's the like yeah, no yeah. point there's a lot of time in between but you never do it halfway <laughs> um do you remember is it an email a call do you remember the moment that producers from chef's table reach out to you and if you could explain how they pitched this vision to you were you even aware had you had you watched a previous season do you did you know what it was uh well i definitely remember because it was very funny uh because i had no idea that there was like a message request on instagram i didn't know that that was a thing i'm not very social media friendly so so I had a message request from Brian McGinn, who's a producer, uh, and just like, have you heard of our show? Would you be interested in talking about putting it together? And I, like, I must have found it a couple weeks later, which was so ridiculous and funny. But I was like, yeah, of course. And so it's, you know, look, there's really nothing. I mean, you can't really say anything when you get a call like that other than like, thanks. You know, when do you want to start? Right. That's the that's sort of the. Sometimes it's better. It's not always my specialty, as I'm sure you've heard over the last two hours, but sometimes it's better just to shut up and do the show. <laughs> you know, like just listen, listen to the producer, you know, like 
like Brian and Ada, like the whole team, Drew, like the Chef Sable team. They're just such amazing guys, men and women, and they're so talented, so passionate. It's just such an amazing experience. And everything about the process of starting to put it together and sort of where we would visit, it was just so so, um, so well done and so impressive. And and such a so I'm so spoiled, you know, like that's my experience doing television is to get a 40 minute show about myself. It's totally ridiculous. Um, but I'm super lucky. And I, I really like Brian. Again, I, I still am in contact with uh, Brian. He's just such a great guy and such a gentleman. And they, they keep producing such amazing content. Um, I loved watching the last season. I loved watching the the Latin, you know, the street food season. You know, they've just produced so so much great mm-hmm. stuff, and I think they've uh, told a lot of stories that really deserve to be told. And they've featured a lot of people who traditionally would not be featured, and I think that's really great. Um, and so, I'm yeah, I'm just super lucky. It's just one of those things. It's like winning the lottery, you know. So it's uh, yeah, it's uh, just good to be grateful and, and not you know not not uh not question it no well so this is a question that i ask anyone who's been on a tv show of this magnitude after the show arrives on netflix can you describe the effect it has on your life really your business is it immediate or six months or a year later um kind of a step-by-step if you could break it down like from the moment the show airs to when you notice oh it's this is changing our business. Maybe like, do you that, see thousands of, uh, that's a very good question. Sorry if I cut you off at the last moment. I'm, I, I was eager, oh, no, eager no. to jump in, uh, jump I, on in. I, uh, no, it was, it was much more immediate impact than I thought. Uh, I think we were very lucky here because it was our fifth year. We were sort of ready and we were sort of waiting for it for a year, but I didn't think that like, Okay, I don't. I would never have said that someone is just like going to fly to Bali, right? Because that seems to me like a little bit excessive. Like it's not like you're in New York and you just get on the metro. To me, that makes sense. But if you're in Bali, it's not like you can just go. But that's what happened. People just came. So like the same, like the day the show came out, uh, within within like minutes, uh, it was a, a huge impact on everything that we did here. I was actually doing a book tour. We had a book coming out. It was like, and I, and I was talking with the guys at the restaurant because I figured I had a few months, right? At least like it was in May. I figured no one was, it wasn't going to affect anyone's travel plans until the summer, right? That just seemed like the logical thing to me. And I'd also had that experience with the like, you know, with the, with other press and sort of having nil impact here. So I figured maybe it was just sort of uh, media proof. Uh, but yeah, I was wrong. <laughs> It was a big. So, so immediately you notice you had reservations. Oh yeah, we we evolved over the year. We had advanced bookings because we we were we were uh, let's say uh, gradually we had been growing organically for five years, right? And we'd been making our reputation in the industry and around and expat and local and and sort of regional tourism and foodies etc and then this just put us in a different stride it went from like organic growth to sort of steroidal growth in a couple of days um and it really was amazing because we the biggest 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 change was in advance bookings because it meant people was sort of planning their trip around coming here um Mm. and that allowed us to sort of shape what we do and then and then by the end of 2018, we were just so busy and we said, this is, you know, this can't be the best experience that we can offer people who fly all over the world to come here. So we shut the restaurant 
and rebuilt it and so we could offer a better experience for less people because we just didn't think that was enough what we had been doing like that hmm. we didn't think it was good enough we were so busy and we were seating like five times a night like we'd been exa exactly exactly what we'd been doing in new york uh which was five seatings of 30 people um which is funny right 15 years later or, or 13 years later but and it was always a joke right you're in this sleepy little town in I mean, we're in Ubud, we're not even in Chengdu, or at the time, Seminyak was busier, but it's, it's, you know, we're in the quietest, we're not even in town, we're like out of town, uh, surrounded by nothing, and we're busier than we were in New York. So, wow. and we'd had big nights, like we, we had been a steadily growing restaurant, and we'd done more than 100 people before, but it wasn't like that kind of onslaught, like the sustained onslaught outside of tourist season. Um, so it, yeah. it just really, really helped us to shape it. And then, yeah, shutting down for three months was, was, uh, difficult, but we based, that was the point where we said either we, we, we walk away now or we do it again. Right. And if we're going to do it again, then we, we make it amazing. And that's when we turned the restaurant into this sort of, you know, we got the land on both sides. Well, we'd gotten one already and then we got the second one. So we were able to do the gardens around us and create this sort of interactive dining experience um, and have it all, you know, be like the kind of place that I always liked going to or always aspired to, to do. It just took, you know, maybe a couple of years longer than we'd expected. But in the grand scheme of yeah. things, actually not long. Yeah, we were incredibly lucky. We want it's it's like winning the lottery, to be honest. Uh, and Wow feel very blessed and very lucky and very humble you know it's always like you know you d you do the same thing every day and then one day it just works so uh, we're not yeah it, we hadn't changed anything they just <laughs> they just gave us a chance to share what we do to more people and then we tried to i don't know to like sort of use that as a way to do something better um and raise our yeah. raise our game and and you know we do that every year actually we try to but you know that was a big that was a big one. Yeah, that was a great moment. And so you you when you you mentioned that you closed in 2019 and you incorporated the new herbs, more trees. I want to kind of talk about because that was 2019, and then the pandemic happens. Yep. You know, a year later. Yeah. So, and I know you've done a lot. You are you were feeding, uh, you know, orphanages, you were feeding different people in the community. So let's touch on the pandemic and, and how can life in the past two years for you guys and what you've been doing and also how businesses today. Sure. I mean, 2018, you know, was sort of this crazy year where we're adjusting to this new level of uh, attention, which we did our best to do as gracefully as we could. Um, then we shut it down. So I think we opened in April 2019 and it was like, you know, we were booked three months ahead at that point, um, which is kind of nice, actually, if you have a restaurant, but it allows you to like be very focused. So we just 2019 was like quite a busy year. You know, we're just busy like like every day, all the time, all the time busy. Uh, 2018 was like an adjustment busy for the staff. They were just working so, so much. Um and 2019, though, was like just a steady, proper, like disciplined, busy. Like you're just busy. There's no other time. The restaurant's open. It's like you're busy. You open the doors. There's people waiting outside. You're you're closing the you're closing the doors. People are waiting. You know, like it, it, it was just like four. You know, four p.m. to two a.m. You're on. You're on every day. Yeah. Uh, and actually, 2020. So we did an annual close. So 
before that in 2019 when the restaurant closed we sent seven of our staff abroad to before we reopened so they could work you know in tokyo at uh, two michelin star restaurant in bangkok and singapore and australia hong kong and so that when they came back they'd be really ready to take us to like another level you know because it was still our opening team the same team that runs the restaurant now and you know they were 19 <laughs> like they were 19 and 20 year old kids from around the restaurant so we thought it would be good for them to see sort of what we were what else what other places uh and get some more experience uh, while we worked on the gardens and everything here. Um, but then 2020, 20, so 2019 was this just like really like high performing year. Uh, and we finished 2019 and then we sort of shut it down in 2020 to give the staff a break so that they could go home and see their families. And, you know, we did like some minor tinkering before the 2020 season and we opened March 18, I think, uh, 2020. And then we closed two days later. Uh, so, so we had a really challenging couple of years, uh, we to, you know, we, op we've been open the whole time. We've kept our whole staff on the whole time. Um, and we just weren't able to even serve tasting menus, I think until August of 2020, because there was no, there was a curfew. So we weren't able to do evenings. We were doing bakery groceries lunches the you know the usual thing that everybody does uh to survive uh which is fine we did it we started cooking for the community we cook a lot for our staff uh, two meals a day we cook same orphanage senior center there's there's a lot of hungry people right now in bali and getting more and more um and that was really important for us to to commit to cooking for people who lost their job and you know just so that they could feel welcome here um, and you know, 2020 was really like survival. And then 2021 was like, well, you know, we got to get on with it, right? Let's start planning for 2022. You know, we did a rebrand, we launched ingredients, we launched our Academy. Uh, we did another garden actually in 2021, uh, another, that's the 20 R one. So that was like our big expansion. And then we got ready for 2022 cause we're planning on having a big opening next door. Uh, this I should this is sort of a secret but let's see we want to do we want to do a candy shop so but it's not done yet so I guess you can keep it as a teaser but it's uh, I hate talking about things that aren't finished yet so and and who knows if we'll be able to afford to finish it but it's been a uh, I mean it's been pretty for a business perspective it's been pretty challenging um, especially if you care about your staff because it's it's very challenging to to pay people when you don't have any revenue or you know uh, you have to be really really creative um, but we're we're pretty creative and and we're pretty determined. So we've been lucky to keep everybody on, and we've got a really dedicated team. Super happy, and you know there wasn't an awful lot of government support here, uh, or not none. I mean, really, is the correct way of saying it. But it, so that's a bit of a challenge. You know, we have a lot of things that are uh, beneficial given where we are. You know, some costs are lower, et cetera. But at the end of the day, if, you, if you're closed and have no support, or you know, essentially closed and you're on an island and there's no flights. I mean, it's pretty, it, you got to be pretty creative. So I, I think definitely the last two years has been like my best, like my proudest moment is just still to be having this conversation, just still to be open, still to being able to take care of everyone. We were so close to throwing in the towel in 2020. It was just so difficult. Um, not forever, but just to like say, you know, for, sorry for my language, but just fuck it. You know, we'll see you in two years. Like, you know, we'll, 
And my wife was like, yeah, we just, we, if we can't take care of the team, then we shouldn't have a restaurant. So simple as that. Yeah. Um, so we did. Uh, we took care of everybody here, their families, the land around the restaurant, the village that we live in. And we just try to do the best that we can. And, you know, those are all things that we'd like to continue to grow, uh, assuming that things will pick up. It's been a, you know, no, it was a long 2021. 2020 was, was challenging. 2021 was long, but productive. And 2022 has been amazing. I mean, we, we sort of changed, uh, you know, it took us a while to stop, to forget that, like, no one cares about 2019, right? It's like, might as well have been. So, so, so there's no point in, in having like in it just start we just figured it was a bit more important to just say this is where we are and then how do we what do we do now so mm. so we're pretty good i mean november december january were pretty good february was a bit challenging um but we're here you know big smiles i think our new menu is the best we've ever cooked you know we've got an amazing team our like the kids are doing so great in every area i mean it's it's a joy to come to work every day and you're an author too. So in 2018, which was, it kind of sounds like 2018 was just this year of abundance, you know, chef's table, book tour. Um, did you enjoy the process of writing a book? I loved it. I loved it. And I had a great publishing team at Fidon and they're, they're really amazing. Frank. I just was very lucky to get a chance to work with them. And I, uh, I was working with a photographer who I really liked at Martin Westlake, who I've worked with for years, and I really enjoyed the writing process. Uh, and I wasn't sure how well it would come across, but I think it's, I think we sold out this, uh, we sold, I think right now it is actually sold out. So we're looking to do something else eventually, but for now, you know, we just, it's, it's, that's like 30 years of work, you know, <laughs> like it's hard to have like a second, like, so it's hard to have enough material that you think is worth it to publish uh and like have something to say uh and so it's been so that was submitted in 2017 so we would have filmed that about just about four and a half years ago i would say we're getting to where we have enough content to think about it you know because we change our menu twice a year uh so that means we've done 42 dishes a year since that book uh, but that doesn't mean everyone is like a book worthy dish, but we've cooked a lot. And I, th I think if we do, I think doing something that focuses on the healing herbs that we work with now would be our biggest passion. And in 2021, you earned a spot on the world's 50 best restaurants list making or actually being the world's best pastry chef. It's crazy because it's like COVID, but then world's best pastry chef. Um, and now 2022 is a good good year so far for you. So I wanted to know, kind of similar to Chef's Table, is it similar when it comes to the effect on your restaurant? Is there a surge of reservations? Uh, are you getting acquainted with a different type of diner? Anything like that well, when you win this? So I, I think in any normal year, the answer to that would have been a resounding yes. Uh, during a pandemic with no flights to Bali, there's no impact really, but negligible impact. Uh, interest, like I, I know that people are interested. I don't. I hope that lasts until people are able to fly here. But it was very different. It, it just it was October. You know, Bali is barely open now. 
uh, it's been important to people in Indonesia, um, but that's not a huge award yet in Indonesia. It's relevant. People like it. And I mean, it's more, to be honest, I think it was just nicer for the staff. They gave up so much over those like two years before. So I, it was really like a big party for them to feel a part of something special. I think that was the best yeah. thing. I think it definitely had a, had a little bit of help. But again, no, no one's been able to fly here, including from, from Indonesia. So so uh it's it's hard to measure impact uh when you're inaccessible yeah um totally. but but i feel really good i know that it's it's definitely a different audience there's a lot of overlap but it's like a very food specific audience um and chef's table obviously is a sh food show but it also because of the nature of it it has an entertainment bent as well um so right. I, i think it's this is more specific but it you know It's a, uh, I mean, it's a huge honor. It's just a, it's very humbling. You know, it's super cool. It's great for the staff. They were really happy. They were very excited. Yeah. And I think that awesome. uh, that's a, uh, yeah, I think long term, I hope that that will have some, some, but who knows by the time the island opens, I'm sure there'll be someone else. I'll be, I'll be uh, yesterday's news again and I'll be perfectly fine with that. Well, let's stay on your staff because you and your wife are directing a project which allows your team members to start their own independent businesses. Yes. So natural dyes, composting, mushroom growing. I think in a previous interview, I read that you said that's really the big focus for us in the years to come. Yes. So expand on this endeavor. What's the importance of it? Where do you see this project 10 years from now? Well, hopefully in 10 years, all of our management staff, in addition to working here on their own companies, that do things uh, that are uh, useful in various ways for the environment and the community. But that's a huge ambition, and I hate talking about it until it's achieved. So I would prefer to say in process of developing and helping our staff have the tools they need to to develop these things uh, and have a kind of focus as like an informal incubator. Uh, and that's one of the things our sort of research space should help with. Um, you know, first, the first business that launched is run by, you know, our chef and GM have a chef clothing line, like an apron and, and a knife roll line, which actually is, they did better than we did last year. They got some huge orders in. And, you know, they started as a company, which was just, we were the only client and now they're make hundreds of aprons at a time. And I think that's a sort of, that was like the forerunner, you know, and then we also realized like we have all these great kids and we want them to stay and we want them to have the stability of a job and the excitement of a business. And I think that's something that, you know, maybe as a 23 year old kid here, you don't get that many cracks at. So I'd, I'd hope in a year to be sharing an update of the first big move in that direction. And, and in the meantime, they're doing a ton of work on products from essential oils, uh, you know, to, to all of these different things. And I think what our job will be to see what we can bring to market and then allow them to spin that off, whether it's eco laundry. And, and again, I, 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 I'm always cautious about talking too much about something until it's done. Uh, because, but at the same time, I think it's worth talking about because I think it's a good yeah. uh, goal and I think it's the right way to uh, treat people, basically. Yeah. No, I love it. And the academy yeah. that we've kind of touched on, you have an academy where you run month-long pastry workshops. Yes. It's been described almost like a graduate school for professionals. Um, you've also mentioned that you've sent, you know, team members abroad to learn at different restaurants. You have plans to convert this to an, an online format soon. 
Uh, you've got sustainable st- sustainability workshops yeah. currently focused on the community, but also expanding to be part of the academy. Right. Um, let's let's touch on all of this because did that start during COVID or before or? Well, as I'm sure you're hearing, like in a familiar refrain, right? You know, my wife has always been pushing me to share this kind of things, and I think that we never really had time. And the Academy, you know, we've been looking at sort of survival in 2020 and running around. And it just seemed like a better way of doing things with less people and also giving back and sharing uh, with people that work here, with people around here and to the community. And um, we have a passion for learning. I think we'll move as heavily into education as we feel competent as it's it's been an extraordinary process. And I think, again, having so the last two years has been exceptionally challenging uh, financially, I mean, there's just no money, so it doesn't. It's in that way, it's not challenging at all. There's just no money; you don't have anything to worry about. Yeah, it's not. It's not like you have to worry. You know, there's no money, uh, so it's right. it's been interesting uh, in terms of what we can achieve and be creative while that. And one of the things is to to document and to share uh, because that doesn't cost anything. So yeah. So and obviously, planting and gardening is a is a relatively low expense way of expanding, right? you can we can rent a, you know this little piece of land and you know working the land it's just a good way to keep young people busy and, and healthy and outdoors and again it's just such a better way of getting through the pandemic right digging a garden than like sitting in a room on a computer and but yeah i mean we see we have big plans but i i never you know let's see what shakes out i i, I like i'd like to i'd like to have some an online platform for classes which i would expect to be able to share with you shortly i just unfortunately it's not confirmed today probably will be by monday but um (laughs) uh, and i otherwise i would frankly like to be plugging it but uh it's not uh it's not it's not confirmed yet and i and i've just done this long enough that stuff comes and goes uh you know so i don't i just tend to like when it's when i can say this is what it is this is what we've already done uh Totally. But yeah, it's been a great way to engage with people. And I think that long term, having a platform for people to share ideas and stories and traditional wisdom from the community and sustainable methods is a really good way to interact with the community uh, here and also abroad. Yeah. It seems really relevant to everybody. So I think we will imagine ourselves being in that direction, obviously, being on an island. That's isolated. Uh, having access uh, digitally is is increasingly relevant. I mean, we're on a video call, right? This type of thing would have been not unheard of before, but certainly not as common. I mean, now it seems like everything is on Zoom or or, or whatever. I think we're on Squadcast, uh, but the, mm-hmm. we're never really. Um, we're I don't know. We really. It's been interesting to to be comfortable in this sort of new way of communicating, um, and it's definitely. Yeah isolating in some ways but it's also very engaging in other ways you're it's sort of like we're not near anyone but we have a lot in common and you also have the manor born so this is a research and development branch uh lab of ideas with your young cooks and it just gives everyone time and space to work on these ideas ideas um you call it, I think I got this off your website. You call it the manner born saying, quote, this is simply the logical endpoint of room for dessert. And by extension, my whole career. Wow. 
I should, what do you mean by that? I mean, I should probably update my website, but I, I think that's accurate for the, for the new project. And again, I think for us, this idea of the lab of ideas is something that we discussed in the book uh, at length. And this idea that there's no physical research space, also because we've never had a research space here, that will change this year. We will have a research space next door. Um, so that so that little the manor born is also like our whole uh, corporate name. We just like to make fun of ourselves a little bit, um, and our our the idea of like the gentry in Ubud to me is very funny. But the the space next door, uh, which will be more like atelier or workshop or atelier, uh, should be in the next twelve months, hopefully six. But let's see. Um, but I think the idea that what we've done here to date is very old fashioned type of R and D, which is like, you know, everybody works their own station, they work their own materials and they develop their own items. So there's no, it's very decentralized, which is very inefficient in quotes. Like it's not, I don't think it's inefficient for people to learn, but it's, you know, you, without a dedicated research space, it's a, a slower, more methodical like group process. Uh, and actually mm. that was a really good, uh, lesson and experience for us and how to sort of get a lot of people on board to the point where now we will have a dedicated research space, but people will still be doing their own R&D on their own station, um, which I prefer because I've worked, well, I mean, El Bulli being the most famous place for having a dedicated research space. Now everybody, I think, has one, but uh, which is which is also great. Uh, but what I don't like about that is it takes the development away from the people that are making the food. And so I, and so we've worked hard to resist that. But now if we're doing new things, we just have such a need for different products and different development. And we've had so much time uh, and, and like all of our time is offline because the restaurant's been so quiet the past two years. So, so we've needed to find a new way to and sort of build on that. And I don't know, I like having this creative space that's also expected to be very productive, yeah. like not just creative for the sake of being creative, but like to deliver. So, yeah. yeah, I think that's what I've been working towards since I started is to, to find a place to make stuff. So that's what we're trying to do. And we kind of touched on this before. Bali, you know, historically being this vacation spot, uh, but it's grown by leaps and bounds in the last 10 to 15 years. And you kind of were discussing that you have a mix of expats, locals and visitors. Is that right? Or are you a destination restaurant? All of those. We are a destination restaurant, cool. but we're, we're, I mean, now we're all Indonesian. So, uh, and we're previously, we're heavy. We're also pretty significantly heavy expat and industry in Bali. Uh, but we always yeah. have a significant part of the dining room for no, that can't be booked uh, for people who live here. Uh, like half of half of the a la carte, the whole a la carte dining room, actually. And the, the a la carte isn't something we offer to anyone except people who live here. Um, so, yeah, we like to have everything. We want everyone to feel welcome here. How do you continue to find inspiration each year? I don't know. I, I, I've been lucky. We, we're now in a place where it, the environment we've created is very conducive to continuing to develop things and the spaces are so great and you know just working on garden planning our next garden plan again my wife gave me my homework it's like a garden uh, sequestering plants you know, car carbon se sequestering plants so we're going to work on a whole new scheme of crops uh, that are sort of uh, carbon trapping i forget what the fancy term is but as we build our kind of multi-strata food forest and and create this nutrient dense uh, foods 
which are maybe not so fashionable in some places. So I think that will keep us going for the next 10 years to start. And then, you know, ba basically medicinal plants will continue. We've been working with them for 10 years. I mean, it never gets old. I mean, the, the world has been using medicinal plants for thousands of years and still, still relevant. If, if anything, it's more relevant, right? The, the, these remedies are even, and the idea of health and healing through food uh, is, if anything, more relevant than when we started. Uh, so it seems like we've been ready. We've been waiting for this moment for years uh, to for where people actually give a shit about what they're, you know, what they're eating and what the implications are and all of those things. So um, I don't know. I feel pretty comfortable. Those are, you know, those are like the big broad brush strokes that that help us organize everything that we do here. I don't know. I'm still the same. Boring, you know. I like watching movies and making notes that remind me of movie lines. That, you know, like. Our last presentation yeah. in, in uh, Abu Dhabi, we did like uh, healing through food for the because we were giving the sustainability award for the 50 best in the Middle East, which was fascinating. Actually, that was a few weeks ago. And, you know, it's like there's a I'm not sure how much into like agroforestry you're into, but there's, you know, it's like a quote from like all of these famous landscape architects and agroforestry doctors. And it's like, you know, seen from when Harry met Sally and, you know, the usual mix of things. Um, I don't know. That's pretty much the same things that I've always been interested in music and movies and books and walking around eating. I mean, I love eating everywhere I go. I get excited to eat and I'm always excited. I don't know. I, I, I haven't gotten to the point where I feel jaded about anything. So I just, I like to eat. I like to eat. I like to cook. You know, I like to come to the restaurant and we have a really great team here who make a lot of things every day. So it makes my job very easy. What does your ideal future look like? Oh, I don't know. I mean, like, I think I alluded to it before, but that was because it was my notes from before, which is like, I, I always like a beach bar in Tahiti, St. Bart's. Those are sort of my, my I'm a very like tropical inspired. Uh, and ironically, we're in Bali, but I'm in the jungle. I'm not at the beach. So I think I'm still do a beach adventure. Um, this yeah. is my rainforest adventure. I think I'm still do a beach adventure. Um, that's just very calming. I, I find it very relaxing just doing nothing yeah. at the beach and just being by the water makes me feel super at peace. So hopefully that will happen eventually. Ponza is quite nice. Mm. So have there ever been any signs or synchronicities in your life that led to new opportunities for you in this industry? That is a very specific question. Excellent question. I'm not sure I have a good answer for that, to be honest. I, I always feel like I've just sort of, uh, I don't say like I'm going through the motions, but I feel like the same thing I said before, like I enjoy the getting up and going every day. I, I think every, all of these, I've had so many magical moments over the years. I guess that's the, the other way I look at it is like, there's so many magical moments that I, I couldn't even pick one, you know, like the, you know, losing the restaurant and getting the restaurant or, you know, like finding a message in an Instagram inbox or responding to an ad on Craigslist. I mean, those are all yeah. like ridiculous moments, right? Uh, yeah. So um, I've just been lucky to have those moments and and lucky enough to just keep keep following along, right? To get a, you know, to get into, to call another one more time to call to El Bulli and have somebody pick up or to, you know, to have immigrate, you know, to be hiding from immigration and, you know, like all of these, I've had all of these great moments, um, over my career. And I think, 
things is sort of oddly coming together. I, I like to think that moments are enough. That's one of my favorite uh, Dennis Hopper quotes. Like someone asked him if he'd achieved as much as he would like in his career. And he said basically no, but that he, you know, he had moments and like sometimes moments are enough, you know, like that's kind of like, I, I like to think of it as a lot of wonderful moments over the past 25 or 30 years and, uh, mm-hmm. and hopefully many more, right? That's the, I mean, I, we feel super fresh here. Like we're just getting started. Um, yeah. so I just hope we can stay sort of happy and not jaded and, and just keep, keep making cool stuff. Are you familiar with being in the flow state? I think so from my meditation apps. <laughs> so the example I usually give is when I'm at my restaurant and I'm working on new drinks for my menu, for example, I put on music and I just vibe out. No one's there. It's just me at the restaurant and the recipes flow. So I always ask everyone that's on here as a chef, have you ever reached this state? And some chefs say, you know, during service or on a Monday afternoon when no one's there, you know, it, everyone's different. So have you been in that state? It's a euphoric feeling and things are just flowing. Yeah, I was going to actually, that was my, I, I, it's like euphoria without the right when her heart stops, like not that moment, but just before the, you know, just before the heart stops, just before Zendaya dies for just a moment. It's like yeah. just that last, that last little second. Um, uh, you know, I like it in service. It's just, that's yeah. what it, that's when I feel like I'm on another planet, get yeah. the music right. And you know, it's like, you're just floating away. Uh, it's yeah. the rhythm is there and it's just, there's nothing like it. I don't cook as much as I would like, and I'm not plating as much food as I would like, but there's just no feeling like when everything is just, just happening. I mean, I, yeah, that's the most, I, I feel very at peace in those moments, mm-hmm. even if they're yeah. increasingly stressful <laughs> and, <laughs> and difficult to manage in other ways. They're still, you know, still chasing the high, right? That's the, that's what it's totally. That's a, yeah, it's a, it's an addictive habit. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you would like to? Um, I feel like it's been very, I think we've covered a lot of ground over the past couple of hours. Uh, I hope that I haven't bored you. I know that I have not at all. I feel like I haven't asked you enough questions, but I know that's sort of not the current format. You're no, that's not the. You were very. You were so <laughs> well prepared that I that I. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I I I think I hope that you feel comfortable that we've given your listeners a good story and you've got some material to work. Oh, it's with. phenomenal. Um, no, I was just before I do the outro. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure that you felt. That there is, you know, that you uh, got everything I'm out. good. I feel great. Okay. I'm having a great day. Like, right. life is good. You know, we're here. Like, awesome. um, I don't know. I, uh, it's, uh, it's always relaxing to talk about things, like, and have some, put things in perspective. But, yeah, it's been a good run. Um, we're just, I'm just lucky to be here. It's been a really good, it's been a really good run. I, I'm it's this crazy moment again in the world right now without getting into the politics of it. And it just seems like so many things are uncertain that it's just, we're just lucky to be here doing what we do and coming in every day and trying to make like our little corner of the world, just like that little bit better or, you know, a little bit tastier, a little bit more sustainable, a little bit more equitable, you know, like all of those little things that we can chip away at. Um, 
Totally. I don't know. I think that's enough. Like I, I feel good. Yeah. That's that. That I find that awesome. very satisfying. Well, Chef Goldfarb, thank you for sharing your story with us. I believe that the journey is always greater than the destination. It's on the path that we learn, evolve, and encounter lessons that shape us into our best selves. I always like ending the podcast by asking if there's any takeaway that you'd like to leave with listeners that can positively influence their lives. It could be something that we just discussed, a lesson you've learned on your journey, or general life advice that you live by. Wow, that's a that is a big burden to put on. But I would say I, I like the my one of the things I've always said and I've said to people that have worked with me and seems to be what's stuck with them too is just don't don't go home. Don't give up. Like whatever the obstacles are and however insurmountable they seem, they aren't. And just if you if you can just stick with whatever it is that you're doing and not give up, eventually everyone else like it'll just be you left. Uh, and I've been saying that to people for maybe 20 years. And now some people say it back to me, but it's the same. I, I, I'm just a big believer in that, just sticking with it and not giving up. And, and that that's a real um, simple piece of advice that's very practical because there's so many times when things are so, so bad. And I mean, we've spoken about dozens, you know, a dozen times where things were just the even each individual thing that was the worst thing ever or blah, 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 or whatever it was. But the, just being able to stick with it has, is, has always been what I've, what I've tried to say and also practice, which is just, just to still be there, you know, still put on a show, get up every day and do it again. And, and, and not, not be, you know, not be encountered, not be, not be faced by any obstacles that might be in your way. Yeah. Beautiful. Where can people follow you? Uh, well, I, I'm always skeptical of the term follower, but the, you can come to the restaurant, Room for Dessert, at Jalan Sangingan in Ubud, which is about an hour from the airport. You just have to fly to Bali, which I believe is currently open. Uh, visa on arrival is now available to most countries. Instagram, uh, I think our tag is R4D underscore Room for Dessert uh, or Will T Goldfarb. Those are the best ways. I'm on Twitter, uh, but not as active. And I don't know about any of the other fancy uh, new uh, social media things. But hopefully, neither do hopefully I. Hopefully, I'll have an online uh, class to share with you soon. Uh, but yeah, I think yes. for now, Instagram, uh, Instagram, I think is the best and most updated version of what we do, uh, and the best place also to interact. Or you can send me a WhatsApp. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't already, follow Have You Eaten Yet wherever you get your podcasts.